Robots vs. Dinosaurs is a proud member of the Apocalypse Podcast Network. Check out Apocalypse Podcast Network for more great podcasts. The following podcast is brought to you by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Robots vs. Dinosaurs is brought to you by the 28th Street and Crescent Bodega. <laughs> Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener. Godzilla, Scream 3, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Jurassic Cinematic Universe, Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World, Jules Verne's The Mysterious Island, The Land of the Lost, King Kong, The Sixth Sense, Bumblebee, Return to Oz, The Fast and the Furious, Peter Pan, Jaws, Elmo's World, The Birdcage, A Marriage Story, Jumanji, The Rocketeer, Hidalgo, Pagemaster, Detective Pikachu, The Wolfman, Toy Story, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Tremors 1-7, through seven, and also the Tremors series on Sci-Fi Network, Dances with Wolves, Independence Day, Resurgence, The Live Action Rides at Universal Studios, The Descendants, Election, and The Mandalorian. Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie every week and then try to determine which one is cooler, robots or dinosaurs. I'm your host, Louis G, and with me as always is my co-host, a new co-host every week. This week, I am talking to my good friend, writer slash waster of money, Peter Turo. Hello, Peter. Hello. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being on. Peter, why don't you tell the audience what movie you chose for us to talk about today on Robots vs. Dinosaurs? I chose the classic Jurassic Park 3. That is right, the 2001 classic Jurassic Park 3, objectively speaking, the shortest in the entire Jurassic series, a surprisingly short runtime. It is a fact you can say about this movie, is it is the shortest Jurassic Park movie. This movie felt, I would say, smaller in almost every way compared to the other Jurassic films. And the runtime is one of the biggest examples of that. It's only an hour and 32 minutes. It's the only one that's under two hours. Yes, and it like it jumps right into the action, but then all of the problems happen. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I look at it as it has Scream 3 similarities and that okay. it's, well, I'll get into it later, but it's also the shortest of a series. And also in the early 2000s. Is, Peter, is this your favorite in the Jurassic series? It is not my favorite, but it has a very special place in my heart. Okay, and we're, gonna, we're definitely going to dig into some of the reasons why. I am, I don't think it's any surprise that I'm a huge fan of every Jurassic Park movie. Any movie with Jurassic in the title is going to be a ticket sale for me. And Jurassic Park 3... I just said that it is the, the smallest, objectively speaking, of the series. With one exception, the, one of the dinosaurs is, is bigger than any dinosaurs we've seen before. I remember that from the, the commercials. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the runtime is smaller. It seems like the locations are less ambitious or there's fewer of them in general. And they're all um, hidden in fog. They're all hidden in fog. It's yeah. It's a very there. It, it seemed like there were limited sets and and limited filming time for this movie. Oh, I think this was filmed over a weekend. Yeah, a lot of it feels rushed, and that might be why it has such a short runtime. But I do, I do love this movie, and this podcast is all about exploring the movie that my guest brings on and and talking about unpacking why they loved it. And since I watched it, and I'm, I'm always going to be a huge Dino fan and a huge Robo fan, I also love this movie, and I want to talk about the things that I really liked. So, <laughs> Peter. Yes. Before Lewis. we get into the movie uh, itself, 
There is what I have identified. This podcast has reviewed two Jurassic movies so far. We've done Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. So check that out. That's our second episode that was with uh, our good friend James Reese. And uh, we covered that episode extensively or covered that movie extensively in that episode. This is our second Jurassic movie. And I predict that eventually Robots and Dinosaur, Robots versus Dinosaurs is going to have covered the entire series. Oh, yes. I've identified a formula that every Jurassic movie has the following things in it, the following oh, yeah, instances, man. the occurrences. And I want you to, I want, I want to read this list off to you so you can tell me if I'm missing anything or if any of it is, is, is inaccurate. Like if, if I'm wrong about, if you can name one of the movies that doesn't have one of these things on it. Sure. So we open with a really cool sequence that shows a death or a dinosaur attack and we don't see that character later on in the movie because they're either dead or hospitalized. Yes. Oh, am I supposed to follow? So my question, I guess, yeah, I, should, I guess I should actually give you the tools to help me out here. So, <laughs> yes, I was like, yes, that that tracks for that okay tracks for everything. So that is in all of them. Yes, that is in all of them. Um, yes. Okay, that's the formula I will go with. Yeah. Based, uh, what I would say is that's the uh, the Jaws style opening. Yes. Okay. Um, followed by, after that opening, we get scientists doing science. They do science. Well, yes, yes. There's a level of science involved. Yes. Uh, A level of science. (laughs) A wealthy benefactor makes an impossible to refuse offer. And twice it's Richard Attenborough. (laughs) (laughs) There's, we see the flight to the island and there is some banter and foreshadowing between the big players. Yes, that is when you can tell who's going to die. The big players see herbivores for the first time ever. Oh, yes. <laughs> a machine goes wrong or a vehicle gets destroyed. Oh, yeah, it's those crazy robots. That's kind of an easy one. Our second death in the... This is a more specific one. I might, I might <laughs> be a little off the mark with this one, but our second death in the movie love is usually someone eaten by a large dinosaur. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes, yes. Sorry, I'm just thinking about this one, and I'm remembering why that's correct. Because mm-hmm. it's usually the first one. It almost one challenged is, you, and then you're right, the first one. Yeah. The first kill is usually that Jaws opener, and yes. it's usually something unseen, like mm-hmm. in Jaws. Yes. Uh, the second one is usually where it's like, this is what you paid to see. People <laughs> getting chomped by something huge and by giant. something that looks more and more cartoon every movie. Yep. <laughs> okay. Someone almost is crushed while hiding behind or underneath a log. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, a character reveals their hidden agenda when it's already too late. <laughs> <laughs> and they always think they're going to get away with that. Mm-hmm. There's a big footprint filled with water. Well, yeah, but that, and that's also because it's all callbacks sure. to the first one. That's a good point. They're, they asked a reason. That would specifically because of that first one. And, and that is, that is a big reason why I wanted to go through this list before we go like beat by beat through the movie because, no, I'm glad you called that out because I, I do think like the Jurassic movies at this point where we're at currently, you know, Jurassic World Dominion is the next one coming out and that's the sixth in the series. They are starting to become sort of a greatest hits. They're, they're all starting to sort of become a greatest hits of the previous films. And Jurassic Park 3 is a very clear example oh, yes. of, how, of that, that trend starting. <laughs> I've got just a couple more on my list. The group gets separated. That's a little easy. But then the raptors set a trap and outsmart the humans. Do you, 
the Raptors did in each one. Mm-hmm. I'm not as versed on World and Fallen Kingdoms. I've only seen each of them once. Mm-hmm. But I will take your word for that. In Fallen Kingdom, it's the Raptor setting a trap trap for the Indoraptor, not technically. Right, right. Yes, but, but still, I'll, we got an asterisk on that one. It still works. All right, my last one, Divorced Parents. Ah, uh, so Spielberg specialty. <laughs> Uh, the okay. IMDb trivia of this movie literally said Spielberg's theme of broken families. Yeah. Yeah. We, okay. So I recently reviewed batteries not included on this, on this show with uh, our good friend, David Lanson. Hi, David Lanson. And that's something we talked about was that is not a Spielberg film, but you can see Spielberg stamp all I over I mean, that it. is this one. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. He was the uh, Spielberg was the executive producer yes. of Jurassic Park three, but yeah, he wasn't, he didn't have a direct hand on it anymore, but there is a Spielberg film thing, which is what we just sort of touched on where a family is formed by a group of people that all share the same experience, the same phenomenon, the same otherworldly phenomenon usually. Yes. So it's it's sometimes a broken family that comes back together through this experience, but sometimes it's a group of of strangers prior to the event, and the event unifies them into a family. Into this new family, yes. Yeah. That's sort of what we get with Jurassic. We get a little bit of both of those with Jurassic Park 3. <laughs> let's talk a little bit about who's in this movie. So, uh, and, and, and let's also talk a little bit about who directed this movie. So, so Peter... Yes. Joe Johnston was the director. The first two movies were directed by Steven Spielberg, but for the third one, for the first time, the Jurassic series brought in an outside director, Joe Johnston. Were you familiar with his work before 2001? I was, but at the time I didn't know it because 16 is, I was 16 when this movie came out and it's fairly pre-most internet for me, okay. um, which is a depressing thing to say out loud. But I had seen The Rocketeer as one of my favorites, and I've always read the credits when I watch a movie. So I remembered he was the director of The Rocketeer. I think 2001 was the year I discovered IMDb, the internet mm. database. Uh, so if I if I knew anything, if I knew that Joe Johnston had directed The Rocketeer prior to seeing this movie, that's the only reason why. And and IMDb is one of those things where as soon as I discovered it. It became never got off of session. It. It's yeah. survival. Between that, my sisters got me a subscription to Entertainment Weekly in 1999. I remember my first issue. I remember everything, and I remember a picture of this movie in their summer preview for 2001. Yeah, I I can also say this movie was at a. They came out at a point in my life where Jurassic Park. I've said this several times before on on previous episodes. Jurassic Park is the movie that got me interested in movies in general. Prior to that, I was just interested in dinosaurs, but Jurassic Park made me interested and and made me pay attention to movie making, films, trailers, just the production of movies, stuff like that. Right. My, uh, I was not allowed to see the first Jurassic Park in the theater. Uh, My mom would not let me go. And so I just had to go on my brother's word. Mm. And, you know, we made our own Jurassic movies with our action figures and stuff that we recorded (laughs) That my brother voiced all the he oh I wish I had those videos, but twenty years later when they did the release in theaters, I went and I called my mom and I said, "Mom, guess what I'm seeing? I'm seeing Jurassic Park." And she's like, "Okay." It's like, "Well, don't you remember you told me I could?" She's like, "No." <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Well, I'm seeing. <laughs> <laughs> this is a win for me. Okay, just let me have this. <laughs> 
<laughs> but yes, that's um, at that age, at, you know, age eight, you start really, or nine, you're, I think you're younger than me, but that's like, you just, you start paying attention to how movie, like, oh, I need to know everything about this. Yeah, it's no longer, I'm, I'm tricked by this. It's no longer this movie is convincing me that this is real. It's, na- it's now, well, I know Santa Claus isn't real, but I want to see how they do it. I want to know how they how it's done how right. it's create we create that illusion yes and i'm purposely going to send this uh podcast episode to my sisters and make her play this out loud for her children under the age of eight yes and also if you find those those videos with your brother narrating oh uh, you've got to send me those so, I, show notes. so clearly remember the female character saying she would take the male character with him or with her for a price Ooh, yikes okay i don't know why that is stuck in my brain <laughs> Um, okay. So, so when this movie came out in 2001, I was already a huge, not only Dino fan, but also a Jurassic fan. I had seen the first two in theaters and I was so excited to see this one in theaters, especially because I knew Joe Johnston, director of The Rocketeer, also Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Wait, what? But also he had directed Jumanji uh, (gasps) just a couple years prior. And Jumanji is the kind of movie that if you're already into, you know, a jungle adventure like Jurassic Park. Jumanji's just going to hit all the right notes for you. As a, as a Side note, Peter, are you a fan of the most recent, uh, the recent Jumanji reboot? I saw the second one. I didn't see the third one yet, but I loved the second one and I unexpectedly cried a couple of times. Yeah, they're, they're better than those have any business being. <laughs> yes, 100%. I also uh, remember thinking to myself recently that my whole family should have known that I was a little queer early on because the thing that I remember most about Jumanji is Bonnie Hunt and B.B. Newworth. <laughs> <laughs> like, ah, um, summer blockbusters, <laughs> Bonnie Hunt and B.B. Newworth. Um, I, what, what year did the Birdcage come out? Because Birdcage was, was 96. This, yeah, okay. I remember it was, it was around the same time as Jumanji. I wanted to see the Birdcage largely because Robin, I was already a big fan of Robin Williams. Yeah. But I, I do remember my mom saying, are you sure that's the movie you want to see? And me just being enthusiastically like, yeah, of course, why wouldn't I? <laughs> yeah. For so, me, I was like, mom, it's Robin Williams. It's the voice of Timon. It's Hank Azaria. Do you watch The Simpsons, mom? <laughs> but yep. again, I remember Diane Weiss from that too, so. Diane <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so Joe Johnson, he, he, prior to, uh, Jurassic Park three, that's what he was doing. The page master, honey, I shrunk the kids, the rocketeer Jumanji. Since then he has done Captain America, the first Avenger and some other films. (laughs) (laughs) The, 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 oh, you were having so much fun up there of compliments. Yeah. Well, he also did the, the Wolfman, the 2010 Oscar winner technically though. Was it for, for best makeup. visual effects? Bet makeup. That makes sense. That makes sense. And yeah. you know what? I am a very big, unapologetic fan of Benicio. Oh, yes. So even though I didn't see the movie, I appreciate that we gave Benicio the opportunity to. to he's <laughs> he's doing fine. Yeah, yeah. He gets with so, credit in the Avengers movies, though. So. I should say we gave, we gave Benicio, somebody gave him the opportunity to save that movie. And uh, apparently he didn't. Uh, (laughs) Only so much you can do. Yeah. Still has a 5.8 on IMDb, but this is where Joe Johnson was at. 2001. 
And I, Peter, I always like to talk about the opening shot of a film. Mm. The first thing that we get, and this is really where this movie declares, like the subsequent movies in the Jurassic franchise, that this is going to be, it's not, it's not going to be as much like you're watching an original Jurassic Park sequel as much as you are listening to a greatest hits album, mm. seeing all of the great vignettes that you loved in the first two sort of happening again, but in a, with a slightly different packaging. Because the, the, we get the Universal and the, and the Amblin logos back to back, both of them doing this sort of ripple effect. Right. Like then, we know what movie this is. We know what movie this is. We know what it's going to be. We know, we know what the audience is familiar with coming into it. Mm-hmm. We know, it's, we know what's, what notes are safe to play at this point. Yes. And they're playing it pretty safe. And then the next thing we see is, is a really great helicopter shot of the island, Isla Sorna, and a title card telling us it's 207 miles west of Costa Rica. And then in big, bold block letters in red, restricted. So I wanted to talk a little bit, uh, since we're establishing the setting with this shot, about the setting itself, Isla Sorna. Isla Sorna, if you remember, mm-hmm. is also called Site B. Site B, it's the second one. It showed up in the second movie. I was personally surprised that for the next sequel in a Jurassic Park movie, that they were going back to not the original island, but back to the island that was already the surprise second island of the second movie. I could already tell at the young age I was when I watched this that they did that because it wouldn't make sense for a bunch of dinosaurs we had never seen be on the first island. But because so much of the second movie doesn't even take place on the island, their justification was that all of these ones were created on site B, which is why we didn't know about them years ago. And apparently even InGen didn't really know about them. So That's fair. I want to ask you this because this is something, this is something I, 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 that comes up a lot when I'm talking about this whole entire series with, with fans. Did you ever think after watching the first Jurassic Park that the, the can of DNA samples that Dennis Nedry drops when he's killed by the Dilophosaurus, that that was going to come back at some point. So as a, as a movie watcher, yes, 100%. That's the whole point of setting up a scene like that. But from a narrative, like a, on a writing standpoint, it's a better story that it just disappears forever. Agreed. But as from a movie watcher, you're just like, but, but it's still there. <laughs> and it's like that, that, that fine line you have to walk between intelligent storytelling and give the people what they want. Do you know there's a video game that explores that? Is it the Sega Jurassic Park? Because that's the only version that I've ever played. No, however, this movie has what I'm pretty sure is a callback to that game when Eric Kirby throws the gas grenades. Yes. It, it, seemed, it reminded me, it made me think of- I said throw them at like the Stegosaurus or the Triceratops I think was the two. And so are you familiar with Telltale games? They made... um, I am not. uh, They make these games that are sort of multiple choice games. That's not the right word for it, but... Choose your own adventure? Yeah, that's sort of. They made one that was based around the Back to the Future series. They they have a Game of Thrones themed one. And there's one for The Walking Dead, I believe, as well. And they what they... The game is these just events, these story events... And every time the character has to make a decision, you have to make that decision. And there's like a little timer that mm. goes down. So it's always like dialogue choices or whether you save this person or that person. And it's always, you have to make these split second decisions and the whole entire story 
depends on your your choices. So this company made a, a Telltale. They made a game around Jurassic Park where you're an agent of InGen or Biosyn, which are the two right. r- rival genetic companies in these movies. But you're an agent that's going to the island to retrieve that can uh, so that they can recover those samples and, and use them in their research. I believe Love it's that. it's the rival one, Biosyn. It makes the most sense. Either way. Yeah, because well, they were delivering them to Dodgson anyway. Yes. And that's kind of, I, I think what you said is true, that from an audience perspective, it would be cool to see a detail like that come back. It would make sense as a viewer, but as a writer, if you think about it for more than just the visual language of it or, or just the, the easily identifiableness of it, and you think about the logic of it, it's the kind of thing that works in video game logic, but it's a little more, it requires a little more suspension of disbelief for them to make it a, a movie plot point. So yeah. I can see why they shied away from that. It's more important that it's gone. Also because those dinosaurs yeah. now have been, have been overtaken by the new models, basically. Yes. This island, Isla Sorna, is more remote than the first island. First island, Isla Nublar, which is um, a rough translation of Clouded Island, is 120 miles west of Costa Rica. So it's a little closer to civilization because it was meant to be a more accessible theme park. This island, Site B, is La Sorna, which is translated as Sarcasm Island, uh, is 207 <laughs> miles west of Costa Rica. So, so almost twice the distance. It's really in the middle of nowhere. And it's like you said, it's, it's so that we can get these more fantastical creatures or these more wild creatures that were created here to be transported elsewhere. Which I think also, in my dumb brain, is a good reason to be, oh, here's all these weird, like I said, fantastical types of dinosaurs because it's, a bit further off, it's a bit more like it feels almost like that island in the middle of the tropics. And just, it's, you don't even know what kind of creatures are here. And it's like, yeah. Isla Nublar, Nublar is a bit more realistic. It feels more grounded. And then you get to Sorna, which who knows what's there. And it, it, it's why this the title of the second movie is a very appropriate title, The Lost World. Yes. Because it, it's meant to invoke the classic. San Francisco, oh, no, the island, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but yeah, the, the Lost World, that's meant to invoke Jules Verne, right? And, and Yes. Um, it's like, oh, here's all these things you thought looked familiar, but now look underneath it and it's quite different. And, and just, yeah, the, the 1930s sort of serials. That it, I think it, it, for me, when I watch it, it reminds me very much of King Kong in a lot of ways. Oh, yes, absolutely. And Okay. So when we, when we first see the, the, this opening shot of the island, then we see Eric Kirby... Eric is the kid's name, right? Yeah, the yes. villain from The Sixth Sense, yes. No, is he? Yeah, that's Tommy Tomasino. Oh, man, we're going to have to dig into oh, that. Oh, we're going to. It's in my notes. <laughs> okay. So what, what is this actor's name? Trevor Morgan. Trevor Morgan. All right. So we see him windsurfing. Is that the right word? Isn't it? no, it's not hang gliding. It's windsurfing. No, because, yeah, I, you know, uh, yeah, they're probably, no, parasailing. They're parasailing. Parasailing. Thank you. Thank you. It's one of those activities I've done once in my life. Uh, for, I was like, I've been parasailing. I've never been hang gliding. So I was like, wait a second. I think I know. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. We see him parasailing with what we find out, who we find out later is his stepdad. And, uh, mom's boyfriend, not stepdad. Oh, he's not even stepdad. He's mom's boyfriend. Yep. Got it. 
Then the boat that's that's dragging the parasail goes into some fog. The captain of the boat already already warns the stepdad, not the stepdad, already warns Ben, mom's boyfriend, Ben, that they're getting too close to the island. They don't want to get too close because there's it's very dangerous when they get too close. And then they go through some fog, and when they come out of the fog, they've all been eaten. <laughs> but what ate them? Exactly. I'm inclined to believe it was like one of the pterosaurs because they could just fly, pick them up and go. Oh no, oh, oh you, you were saying that rhetorically, you know the answer. I don't know the answer, but oh, I, okay. I, I am asking because everything that I think it is, I thought it was the pteranodons, right? Right. But later on in the movie, we see them, we see them trapped and in the walk, aviary. And they're walking slowly on a catwalk. And well, they can't seem to escape the aviary until right. later on in the movie when the people, the survivors do something that opens it up and allows them to escape. Which so I, I is, the, uh, is the stage direction that's in the script. The people open it up somehow and then they <laughs> escape. <laughs> now, I could also be- The level this could of thought be, that two Oscar winners put into the script. this could also be a thing where i didn't pay enough attention and also i'm forgetting a detail which is in the second movie we also see pteranodons so see i don't remember that so your health it's been some time since i've seen the lost world so it's most likely pteranodons but why did they stop at eating the guys in the boat because they wanted the image this this movie is the ultimate not the ultimate there's many versions of it but like such an example of it's going to look cool, so we're going to do it. Yeah. And they, and it when, like and it was, they know that we have your money anyway. So it doesn't it was, matter what story we tell. It seemed very important for them to film it as like closely to the Jaws model as possible. Like, do not show the monster yet. Right. We don't even hear it in this one. Yeah. And that's like, we why... We see the copies. We don't see the T-Rex in the beginning but and the first one. But, like, we at least have a sense that they're here. Because the only other things that it could be that eat these guys in the boat are possibly the Spinosaurus, because we do see it swimming later. Right. But I don't, analog. <laughs> I don't know how far offshore they are, and I don't know how, how far <sighs> offshore a Spinosaurus actually yeah. would swim. I don't think the script knows any of these answers. <laughs> and, okay, so another possibility is that the later the Jurassic World series gives us is a Mosasaur. I was going I, to suggest that one. Right. right. It, or maybe it was like a baby. Like a, like a, okay. uh, I was going to make a homo sore joke and didn't work out. Well, what, <laughs> whatever it was, it got on the boat, ate everybody. It's got the gay dinosaur is a homo sore. That's it. There we go. There we go. Uh, yes. <laughs> and then it left, it completely left the dangling meat up in the sky, totally, totally alone. So I guess, I guess since the movie moves, moves past this detail, we're going to move past this detail. <laughs> then we, okay. So the next, the next scene that we see is a bit of a misdirect. This, these movies are, they find a lot of humor in these misdirects. This one is, it's showing Dr. Grant talking to a child who's playing with dinosaur toys in a sandbox. And he's correcting, uh, this child is named Charlie. He's correcting him because the kid is smashing these two herbivores together. And Dr. Grant is explaining to him that the, the herbivores wouldn't really have a reason to fight each other. And he picks up two carnivore toys and he explains that they like to attack with their teeth and their claws. And you're, I feel like you're meant to assume this is Dr. Grant's child. And you're by extension meant to assume it's a child he had with Dr. Sattler. Did you assume that or was it just me? 
Again, I used to read all of the credits for movies before they came out. And so it told me in advance that it wasn't Alan's son. Oh, see, Peter, this is why I avoid spoilers. And oh, yeah, no, no, no. This is this is my my curse of all of yeah. my youth. I fast forwarded to the end of Scream 2 to watch The Killer and then rewound it to watch it from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. But this wasn't so much a spoiler, but I appreciated just the idea of Dr. Grant playing with children even younger than Lexi and Tim. Yeah, and, and it kind of gives you, it would give you some nice payoff to the events of the first movie because yes. that was one of the major plot points with Dr. Grant and Dr. Sattler was they had this ongoing debate with between each other about as a couple, do they want to have kids? Right. And Dr. Grant was pretty clear, draw, drawing a line in the sand at the beginning, at least. No, not interested. Kids smell. And by the end of the movie, it seems like he has gotten one over. So when we see this in the third film, and it's our first time seeing Dr. Grant since then, I, I think we are definitely meant to assume it's his kid right. up until Ellie comes out of the out of the house and we find out the truth. And then kisses her husband. <laughs> yeah. And then do you feel, how, how do you feel about this development for these characters? I'm fine with it because I, I fully buy the concept of you not wanting to, like you can have that rapport with someone you had this horrible experience with, but you're not going to be able to have a normal relationship with them anymore. And I think in the fact that we even had the knowledge of them as a couple in the first one, when they do, it's such a couple that is so comfortable with themselves because they do nothing in the movie to establish that they're a couple. We just know that they are. Yeah, um, we get one line where Dr. Grant confirms it in response right. to a question about it, but that's yes. it. But other than that, and that he's really just saying to really challenge Ian. And mm -hmm. so he's just like, it, it's, it's, but that's the most we get. And I love that. That's like such interesting storytelling that we've just sort of accepted them as this couple when they pretty much were, but like, we didn't know. Yeah. And the whole point of keeping them both out of the second one, I think was, I mean, I don't think they wanted to do it, but also it's just natural progression for the characters. They would want, he would want to stay the same and she would want to evolve. I think it's honest. I think it's much more honest than it is the typical Hollywood update to, you know, yeah. if we, it's not giving the audience everything they want, you know? Mm -hmm. There has to be some, even between them, there needs to be some conflict. Like there needs, it's not even bad conflict, but it's like, these are two people who are after different things now. And we, we do see the core of their relationship has survived when he, uh, Dr. Grant gets very excited to tell Ellie about the cranial scans of raptor skulls, the fact that they've recently discovered they have a sophisticated resonating chamber, uh, which he thinks is the key to their social intelligence. He says that they are, raptors are smarter than dolphins, whales, and even primates. That was uh, I, one of those things where I think as I got older, I thought to myself, every time we learn something new about dinosaurs, we're going to get a Jurassic Park movie out of it. Mm -hmm. And this was that whole, like, they're starting to look a little bit more like birds kind of thing. And like, it was some really uh, lowercase s science. Yes, lowercase s science. That <laughs> I do love that they updated the designs of the raptors in this movie because oh, in the yeah. second one they're still sort of the same desert brown template and they're they're all kind of homogenous. I love that in this one they almost have plumage, they almost have identifying marks and and varying designs. And that's what made me feel less not angry is a strong word. I didn't care about the movie, but less angry at the design of the raptors in Jurassic World. 
because they're definitely like that blue silver kind of sheen and they start to have those colorings in this one. So it doesn't come completely out of left field when they redesign them. Yeah, and some of them have more like frills than others. Mm -hmm. Some of them are more- Which apparently when I did my uh, little weird research today, the people who were making the models said the same thing. They were kind of bummed that they were doing Raptors again and then they found out they were gonna get to do them differently. Now, do we do we buy into the next thing that Grant says, which is raptors, rather than humans, would have become the dominant species had it not been for the cataclysmic event that, that caused the extinction? No, sir, we would not buy into that. I think that is a dumb line, and it was written specifically to be uh, an act break. <laughs> it's like if there's a commercial. <laughs> come back for the next it's a dumb line and that's the thing where i'm like this is dr grant like this is not alan grant but as we know him this is he's doing a bit more pop science and it's like sure have your fun so peter you don't think that there's a future for the jurassic series where it eventually becomes like a dino society a la the show dinosaurs or theodore rex uh where they talk and do things yeah and uh, they wear clothes they have yeah jobs, sure i think eventually i mean yeah, I buy that as much as I buy the next Fast and the Furious going into space. Like, sure, why not? Go ahead. To call back I mean, to <laughs> previous Jurassic episode, what about Fast and the Furious combining with this franchise? I would buy it. Like, at this point, sure, why not? They used to be drag racers, and now this. It's the most insane arc of a series I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you remember? And this this is the last we'll talk about Fast and the Furious. But do you remember what they, what <laughs> they were stealing? What they were heisting in the first movie? No, Just what to, were they heisting? A, a DVD, a DVD TV <laughs> combo machines, like TVs with a DVD player built in, because that was the height of technology. That was an expensive gadget. Um, this is so going to be where the last. Though, this is where we're going to say the last of it. Is that? In high school, we all had our really bad cars that we all drove to see that Too Fast and Furious together at the Wilton Mall. And we all burned up that parking lot. Just be like, yeah, look at us. That means you watched the movie the way it was intended. Oh, I wish I could have drank then. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Grant is very cynical at this point in his career. He has had this experience that... We find out later afterwards he wrote a second book that was sort of an update to everything that he had learned about dinosaurs since being a paleontologist, since prior to going to the, to, to the park mm -hmm. and being a paleontologist. And during this, uh, what looks like a college seminar, he is describing the dinosaurs, quote unquote, dinosaurs from the park as genetically engineered theme park monsters. What I like about this is it, it's the series is already starting to acknowledge that these are not actually dinosaurs. This is a sci-fi movie series. Right. And we're gonna call them dinosaurs because that is shorthand for what they are. But at every turn, we have to keep in mind, we don't know what dinosaurs really looked like. We don't know what dinosaurs really were like. This is the closest thing that we can, that science can bring us. Because this is what the science told us in 1993. Well, not only that, but we're, we're also combining their DNA with, with frogs, amphibians, or later on with cuttlefish, with um, all, kinds DNA. Of, <laughs> all kinds of other uh, creatures to give them different qualities. So they, they're, they, they've been creating hybrids since the beginning. Yeah. 
And I like that in this movie, the paleontologist character calls out the fact that, okay, yes, we can easily call these dinosaurs, but that's not what they are. It is still important for paleontology to be a field of science so that we can understand actual dinosaurs. But what, what is clear from the rest of this scene is the world has moved on from that. The world is not interested in paleontology anymore. It's a dead science because of this. Right. I also personally love that line, like you said, because it is sort of, it's also allowing the script to go in a certain place, but also there are two scenes in this movie that are full on theme park rides. And we will discuss that when, when it comes up to it. But like, this is the most theme parky of the movies. Okay. We are getting, we're getting close to, I think the first of those sequences. We are introduced the bar to- scene? Yeah. That's a- in the first, uh, un- <laughs> this is around the 10 minute mark. This is another thing Jurassic movies are good at doing. They, they have a, a series of scenes at the beginning, introducing you to all of the key players before they all come together you know, on, the, on the trip to the island. So we get introduced to Udesky and his small crew, which I think these guys are named Cooper and Nash. Uh, I know at least Cooper, yes, because that's that's who they yell for. Because he gets he gets he, he's the first one eaten on the island. See them in an, like an abandoned airstrip with a bunch of like military gear and, uh, and just big shooting stuff. weapons, just shooting stuff, blowing up a, a, a decrepit. You know plane. that hard ass Michael Jeter, <laughs> <laughs> Mister Noodle. Well, what's funny about that is later on he gets called out on that the same way that they call out William H. Macy. Yes. And and I love that little moment between the two of them because they both sort of acknowledge, oh, hey, you're, you're bullshitting everybody. Yeah, yeah, you're bullshitting everybody too. Yeah. Yeah. It is but you all told the truth on this trip. <laughs> but neither of them are mad at each other because they know they've both pulled the same con and they're yep. both sort of the same derpy and, Ned Flanders looking guy. And they also both kind of fell for it. So it's yep. neither of them wants to admit it. <laughs> It's like game respect game. Yeah. 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 <laughs> game of William H. Macy. All right. So we, uh, <laughs> so we get this line from Alan Grant also that no force on earth or heaven could get me on that island. Again, that is a line st- just for a script. Sure is. <laughs> okay. So we get our, we get our <laughs> protagonists, our other protagonists, Tay Leone and William H. Macy. They are the John Hammond of this movie. They're, they're the people that are showing up to make this, this wealthy benefactor that's showing up to make an, an impossible to refuse offer to come to the island. They're offering to fund Dr. Grant's research. And they're telling him not even do they have to go, like they're planning to just fly over the island. Like they haven't yes. even told him anything further than that. And uh, they're, they're hyping themselves up. They're, <laughs> they do a good job of dismissing any concerns about the validity of their story. And this um, is also the year 2001 when research was more difficult. <laughs> Yes. And Dr. Grant does at one point say that it all sounds hard to believe, but they've already established like between the two of them, between the two of them, they've got seats booked for the first commercial flight to the moon. They are, they talk about like their safaris that they've gone on and, and these adventures that they've gone on. So they, they do a good job or a good enough job of painting themselves as a wealthy couple with money to burn, a couple that has more money than sense, which is kind of what Dr. Grant needs at this point <laughs> for yeah. a paycheck. Yeah. And it's it's a little bit tragic. It's a little bit cynical that we're seeing our hero from the first movie at this difficult point in his life. That's a third movie thing, man. Like, uh, that's, this is the point where they are, they are a shadow of themselves. Yeah. Because the Once world again, is moving on from the thing that made them important. Like and it's said. part of the... 
it's part of the authenticity that I, that I appreciate about this film. Yeah. Dino fever did die down in the nineties. Yes, it did. And because they yeah, thought that did. Godzilla would work and guess what? Did not. A lot of this podcast explores that in great detail. Because a lot <laughs> of films that we cover are movies that were inspired by Jurassic Park that came in that window after Jurassic Park of 1993, where they were trying to capitalize on the dino craze. And in doing so, some of them, I think, sort of killed it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's why you don't like write something that's so like, like it's up to pop culture specific because in a year no one cares. Yeah. At this point in the movie is when everybody's heading to the island. And again, going back to my thing about this being a greatest hits, we get a, a, a sped up version of the classic theme playing in the background as they're flying to the island. And they're, they're, so they're flying there under the pretense that it's going to be a, a guided tour, that Dr. Grant is going to explain what they're looking at as they're flying over this, this lost world of wild dinosaurs living in their quote unquote natural habitat or, or the terrarium habitat that John Hammond built for them. And, we're talking about minute Peter, 17, second 15? Peter, at 17 minutes and 17 seconds during this flight to the island, we get what is probably the most memorable. Line of this that's movie. That's the truest thing I could yeah. say. The most May- memorable moment of Jurassic Park 3, no matter who you talk to yeah. that has seen this movie. What, tell, why not, paint a picture for our audience, please. Uh, Alan Grant is uh, sleeping. And he, so he's like Indiana Jones with a hat over his eyes. And he, and he starts, he turns because someone's calling Alan, Alan. And so he wakes up and he turns and there's a raptor in his face that says, Alan. And it is, <laughs> it is one of those things that you, you both wish and don't wish you created because you wish because it is just like an insane moment in this film. But it is a line in a reading and a moment because the raptor talks in Jurassic Park. And it is purely the moment where the whole series goes off the rails. Yes, it does. There, there, there is, we're going to dig into this moment. Yeah. There's a lot in it. <laughs> One. It's a raptor that talks. <laughs> yeah. And prior to this happening, we know that, that that's what Dr. Grant has on the brain. Right. He's been. Oh, yeah, I just got that. He has been re- researching cranial scans of raptor skulls and their sophisticated uh, resonating chambers. And Billy made the 3D he's, model. Exactly. And he's obsessed with this idea that, that speech, <laughs> advanced speech patterns and language is the key to their extreme social intelligence. And if they could talk, they would know that his name is Alan. Well, when you've had a person, when you've been personally traumatized by these things. Do you know what I wanted gonna... the moment to follow up with? His, uh, his wake up horrified sound from Event Horizon, mm. where he sees his dead wife and he just goes, oh, oh, oh. I kind of wish they'd done both. Yeah, that would have been, ooh, that would have been a, a good Easter egg. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing about this that's really great is the delivery of the line itself because it, it's kind of not that urgent startling you out of. It's just sort of like, Alan, Alan. Right. Question, because I'm just now wondering this. Mm-hmm. Is that Alessandro Nivola's voice? Let's talk about whose voice it is. And is he now credited as Raptor? <laughs> it's got to be It's got to be Billy that's saying it because he's when it's who, revealed that it's the actual not, line. Yeah. A raptor. Yeah, it is Billy. It, it is, is a Billy human man. 
So was it Alessandro Nivola? Most likely. <laughs> Alessandro Nivola, where do you remember this actor from that, um, that is not Jurassic Park 3? So I know that there's probably an, a correct answer that you're looking for. I saw him on stage on the Broadway in The okay. Elephant Man. And that's how I remember him. Because I just remember him from this because he was 29 and cute. And that's when I started noticing cute boys. But, you know, that's, that's, correct. that's my limitation. Oh, wait, no. Didn't he do like... Was he, oh God, not Laurel Canyon. Some, I'm going to look it up while you tell me. So correct on all counts, he is, I, there's no right answer. I was asking because he's one of those actors that you you see in a big movie like this. And then when you look at their IMDb, typically there's a lot of credits, but it's a lot of stuff you haven't seen. But the one that stood out to me was he was Pollux Troy. In Face Off. In Face Off in the same year that the second Jurassic Park movie came out. So that's why he was a little too busy back then for the Jurassic <laughs> series. I playing. saw Face Off with my grandmother. She took mm-hmm. me to see it in the theater. Oh, good choice, Grandma. She's a, she's a lovely woman. Uh, yep, yep, Laura <laughs> Canyon. That's where I remember him from. So I, I like this actor. I, I like this character a lot. He is the one that creates that 3D printed model of of the voice voice box of the raptor i always wish i had one of those there's another really great moment on this plane ride that i love where he turns around and he and there's this guy i think it's cooper wearing sunglasses just sitting in the back Mm -hmm. of the plane not talking to anybody clearly some sort of goon some sort of 'er ne'er-do-well type of guy a mercenary looking dude and he just says so how do you know the kirby's and he just goes uh Uh, through our church church Great yeah. line. Great answer. It's pro- it's one of his only lines in the movie. Perfect delivery, though. <laughs> Nails it. He probably has four lines in this entire movie. Then we get to this really great sequence where they, they introduce the big baddie of Jurassic Park 3. And the marketing for this movie has already sort of told us, move out of the way, T-Rex. There is a new dino in town. There's a new sheriff in town. And his name is Spinosaurus. Her name, I guess, is Spinosaurus. And is going to barely be in this movie. <laughs> yes. But they, but they tell us that by murdering the T-Rex right off the bat. Oh, yes, it does. Which did not sit well with a lot of But people. it's it's a different island. It's not our T-Rex. Right. It is not it's Roberta. A T-Rex. Is that the T-Rex's name? That is, that is the name that a lot of the pr- production crew affectionately called the T-Rex Excellent. in the okay. first movie. So a That's, lot of fans... Roberta, a lot of fans the day in Jurassic World. <laughs> refer to that T-Rex, which is the same one that comes back in Jurassic World and Fallen Kingdom. And Fallen Kingdom. They lovingly refer to her as Roberta. I have heard her referred to as Bruce. Bruce's Jaws. I know, but I but I, for that reason, I've heard um, her referred to as Bruce, and I don't know who calls her that. But I, the, no, Roberta is the name Roberta. I go with. I, I like, like that. Thank I you. like thinking of her as Roberta. There's, I've also heard Rexy. I've also heard fans oh. call her Rexy for some reason. I would call this one Rexy because it's got a little uh, green shimmer to it, like the early 2000s dayglow coloring was. Yeah. Now, when you saw that this fight was going to pop off, who was your money on? Oh, again, I was far too shrewd at 16 in terms of movies, so I knew that the Spinosaurus was winning. I knew that from... So it wasn't even fun to watch because it's just, you know, it's going to happen. So it's like, well, and then the fight's only three minutes. Yeah, I I knew from the music cues, the marketing. I knew from 
The we'll talk about the, the music in this movie at some point. The fact that they use the Spinosaurus, they replace the T-Rex right. uh, fossil with the Spinosaurus fossil in the logo for the movie. That alone told me yes. as soon as this is happening. We have a toy that we're going to sell you. Exactly. And it's going to be a bigger toy. It's going to be a bigger toy. Just different enough. Yep. Uh, unlike the T-Rex with its useless tiny arms, this one has long prehensile <laughs> arms. And a I just love doing the arms that I remembered on the podcast. <laughs> Do them as loudly as possible. Mm. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so we are introduced to the Spinosaurus Egypticus, and Billy says uh, he doesn't remember that being on any of InGen's lists. And this is where we get into what you were yep. t- saying earlier, where they were doing these unsanctioned experiments, unsanctioned cloning. And that's Um, why they, and apparently the growth took place after, in the four years between Lost World and this one. Yes. I will admit, I know less about a Spinosaurus than I knew about a lot, I know about a lot of other dinosaurs, largely because it's a species that was discovered shortly before this movie came out. And that's a big reason why they they did it. it Big baddie. But I know less about it than I do about a T-Rex, for example, which they are still at this point in the series going with the theory that a T-Rex's visual acuity is based on movement mm-hmm. because when they encounter it, Dr. there's a really funny comedic moment where Dr. Grant says, nobody move. And then everybody just runs. Yep, right behind them. But, but the one at the end of the movie when he says, run, and then pushes everyone, they start screaming and running. <laughs> uh-huh. So, so the movie is still playing the movie series is still playing with that as a concept that the T-Rex can't see anything that's not moving, which paleontologists have weighed in on that. We don't have to get into that, that debate, but the Spinosaurus seems to be more intelligent, doesn't seem to have that limitation, seems more physically capable for the reasons we've described, but we see it chasing a couple of humans and it's stupid enough to get caught between two trees by just yeah. running into And then them. just turns around. Yeah. And I'm going to say, <laughs> it might be weird for me to pick out that detail to take issue with, but that is the point where I'm like, ah, you had me, Yeah, you almost had me rooting for this creature, but is it really that stupid? Right. Like have it maybe like run over something that was a trap and then it falls or something like that. Yes. But something that wasn't based on it, just needing to get out of the scene for them. Again, this is, this is, Every, every incident of this, I'm going to call back to the script because it's really just, okay, how do we end this moment and just move it on? Right. Have the humans outsmart the dinosaur or use technology to right. trap it. Or don't they get away. Yeah. Like, like, don't have it caught between two trees, which are part of its environment naturally. Right. right? Yeah. It's like when, to, when is, Lexi terrible. and Tim escape in the first one, it's only because they are rolled off the cliff. If it had been two more seconds, boom, they're dead. But they remove themselves from the environment. Yes. It's a logistical um, reason to get away. And <laughs> you say that there's some some loose writing, but then we get this genius <laughs> bit of dialogue between Paul Kirby, played by William H. Macy, and his wife Amanda, played by Tay Leone. Where, <laughs> where Paul, William H. Macy, says to Amanda that she can go off on her own, but she's going to get eaten by some tricycloplots or something. <laughs> Yeah, I listen. I said there was there was some loose writing. I didn't say there was gold in the dialogue. They do different, two different things. 
Dialogue is one thing, story is another. True. And we could also, something like tricycloplots, we could chalk that up to, that could be an I action. hope, I'm pretty sure that was just, he tried to say a word and he's like, we're keeping it, we're keeping it. Peter, what do you, do you think it's possible that a tricycloplots is an unethical hybrid dinosaur that Dr. Henry Wu and his scientists created? Yeah, probably, because apparently he's gone insane. <laughs> he has. And what would a, tri- what do you think a tricycloplots uh, what features, what dinosaurs would that I contain? think it would have three arms or legs. Okay. It'd have a okay. way to like, it'd be, it would literally be a tripod where yeah. it would have like a, a retractable leg that came out of its like thorax and like it would move to go down on all fours and it would now have a fifth leg. I, I think you're right. The cyclo part though implies to me that it might, might be on wheels. But that's I, when I heard tricycle. Like mm-hmm. tricycle plots. But that, again, that could be an unethical hybrid of a bicycle and a, it'd be like if a dinosaur had broken its legs and it had to be in one of those wheelie things that a dog is in. <laughs> <laughs> like send his little helper just like wearing the, the rat. <laughs> <laughs> so imagine like a little baby T-Rex just in one of those. <laughs> Already with its short hands and now with its <laughs> wheelie I'm caboose. Things from Return to Oz. Oh, the wheelies. The wheelies. Oh my god. They had long arms. That's a thing a T Rex will never have. But so it's a, it's so it's part Spinosaurus. We know that much. It's yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the Tricycloplots is now my favorite dinosaur. It's part Triceratops, part Spinosaurus, part part wheelies from Return to Oz. Return to Oz. Tricycloplots is my favorite dinosaur. William H Macy, Paul Kirby might be my favorite Jurassic series character because when they get really sexy mustache when they get to that building that like visitor center building and they're trying they find a vending machine and William <laughs> Macy's like in. who's got quarters I got like a I got like a buck ten. Oh, what a nerd <laughs> oh god it's just one of the best also how does he how is this money still in his pocket after the plane crash the right. first example of a theme park ride in this movie that I will say that okay. is fully a Universal Studios ride of your plane crashes in half and then a dinosaur tries to eat you. Yes. And and all of the people that are supposed to be in charge, the pilot, the are, guy, the are guys the with cast the guns, members. Yeah, they're the, cast they're the first ones that yep. get eaten. So you are yep. on your own. Classic sort of like Universal Park ride setup, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. The people in, in authority get taken out of the picture very quickly. It's, so it's it just, puts you yeah. on edge. Please don't um, run our insurance policy. And of course, later we find out Udesky and his whole team were full of crap to begin with. Yeah, that, that Rambo of a man, Michael Cheater. Such a we get, we get this awesome scene where they're in this genetic lab. They have all these formaldehyde tests. Yes, I love it. And somebody, uh, Amanda, uh, she asks, this is how you make dinosaurs? And what, what's the response? This is how you play God. Exactly. This is a question that comes up a lot, a theme that comes up a lot in the Jurassic series. And I think this is a good time to dig into one of the central, one of the central questions that this podcast explores. Mm. Peter. Yes. In your words, what is a dinosaur? A dinosaur is a, I would probably think of it as like a prehistoric creature that was mobile like ambulatory, is that what it means? Like when you have legs, you can move. Yeah. Well, not, I guess not reptile, but like a, I don't want to say predator because it's it's a, a predator of various types who early populated the earth. Are there dinosaurs in this movie? No, there's clones of dinosaurs in this movie. Okay. 
they're bastardized by science dinosaurs in this movie. How hard of a line do you draw between what do we see in these movies in this movie, these movies, and and what an actual dinosaur would be? Well, yeah. mine is based on the fact that I, you know, almost failed high school science. So uh, <laughs> what I would say then is based on my knowledge of movies. Yes, there are dinosaurs in this movie. Okay, that's 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 I think the big, the more important aspect of this is yeah. these creatures, these movie monsters, these are dinosaurs, very obviously speak the visual language of dinosaurs. And in this movie, they speak human language. <laughs> <laughs> Alan. 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 <laughs> I hope he has a raptor on his, on his, on his resume. <laughs> <laughs> it's never not going to be funny. No, no. That's why I will never, I hope to never have a friend named Alan because I would ruin them. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, Jesus. It'll ruin me if I... Oh, yeah. So, all right. So, <laughs> I like that this movie, the movie series, has has reached a point where they fully acknowledge that. They fully oh, acknowledge yeah. that these are monsters, these are hybrids, these are science fiction creations. I think for this movie to go in the direction that they plan to slash what the sequels go into, you have to abandon the level of reality that the first two kind of had. Yes. And just fully embrace the sci-fi. Yes. And the fourth and fifth movies in the series <laughs> really explore how capitalism is the driving force behind all of it. Yeah, and none of these none of these movies ever explored the capitalism part before. Well, they they, they go did. hard in, they go hard into it in the new ones. Yeah. Well, what I mean is in the in those movies, they really go into how like capitalism is what drives the existence of these creatures in the first place. And the fact that they are bastardizations of science, the fact that they are, the goal is not to make them as authentic as possible. Right, um, like that, that goal has gotten perverted over the years. Yeah, and well, even from the beginning, they were really meant to be, I don't, I think if you showed John Hammond when he was creating Jurassic Park, if you showed him the latest dinosaurs- I think he would hate it. That shows that dinosaurs would have had feathers, would have looked more bird-like and goofy. Yeah. I think he, I think he would have hated it, and I don't think he would have changed anything about what he did. He would 100%. have still made dinosaurs that look like artist dinosaurs, fictions. Those are dinosaurs. what we grew up with. Yeah, that's exactly. he's he's selling you comfort. He's selling that's, you this thing you grew. That's thing. Like that's the whole point of that monologue with him and and Ellie. Is yep. it's he's a showman and he's going to show you the thing that you always wanted to see. And by this point, we're at an interesting sort of pivot point in this world, in this Jurassic world universe, where it is that, it started as that, but there's also this island where the dinosaurs have been allowed to free range and they have been able to, to reproduce unchecked and they've removed the whole lysine contingency mm -hmm. that was gonna kill them all off if, if, they, if humans didn't intervene. So it's kind of interesting that we have these first-generation clone dinosaurs, but at this point, we have a few generations of quote-unquote naturally-born dinosaurs right. that are interacting is, and mating. Yeah. While you were saying this Jurassic World, not the world, but like, you know, this, this, all these collection of films. The JCU. I started, well, well, I started thinking, <laughs> I'm like, okay, the JU, the Jurassic Universe, and I'm like, the sixth movie should be Jurassic University, where it's, this dinosaurs are going to school. And that would be like our Monsters, Inc. But it's... Yes. But first they have to get... They have to, they have to establish Dominion. And then the next cycle of three movies can be a version of like Fast Times, Run High, Porky's, 
Animal House with dinosaurs because they're in. The yeah, before that though, Dom Torero and his friends yes, and the Rocks yes. need to come and, and well, they, rescue well, they, the dinosaurs. Well, yes, and then they build the school. Cars. They build the university out of when, the parts of the buildings that they have <laughs> blown up. So. T- uh, Tay Leone, uh, uh, her character, Amanda. I believe you mean Elizabeth Pantaleone, her legal name? Correct. Is uh, walking through this facility. And, okay, another great fake out, another great misdirection. She is looking through this formaldehyde tank, and there looks to be a raptor head just sort of like staring back mm-hmm. at her from inside the tank. And then the eye moves, and then the whole head peeks out from behind the tank. It's a raptor, Peter. Surprise, raptor. Sh- and they should be dead. In that moment, they should all be dead. <laughs> yes. My biggest question is, what was that raptor doing? Uh, script work. <laughs> it was... Okay. I think if you think of it logistically, it probably had gotten in, because they're supposed to be more intelligent than the previous raptors. Yes. And so it probably was foraging or something, and it was in... Because th- it's this is not a thing that's like the aviary, which is closed off. I think they can just jump in and out. And I think the raptor was there, heard them coming... And I think at this point they have learned to like blend in. It's like they're kind of chameleons. Yeah. And I think it, it's, they, they're, they're, they're adapting how to trick the predators, the other predators. I don't, I don't think it knew that somebody looking through this glass would have a concave view and would think it's inside of it. Agreed. I do think though, I will give it a, this much credit. I think the raptor knew I need to stay still. Mm-hmm. and Because their vision is based on movement. Well, in the opposite <laughs> direction, yes. Yeah. Well, like maybe the dinosaur thinks that about the humans. Yeah. Their vision is Which, let, let's unpack that a little bit because when Dr. Grant actually Remember, says I that, failed science. <laughs> well, yes, but but from from a layperson's point of view, watching these movies and getting that information fed to yes. you, you're told by the films that in the first one, it shows you this happen. Dr. Grant says their visual acuity is based on movement. Those are the exact words. And we see it being lit, like people are invisible mm-hmm. to it if they're not moving, which doesn't really make sense. What the statement, it's visual acuity is based on movement, really I, what it means to me is you are easier for it to see when you're moving. It tracks movement the way that a dog, like a dog will always if you make a motion like you're throwing something, it will always look in that direction because they're wired that way. Their acuity is based on movement. I was, uh, yeah, because I was, I guess it's like if you throw some, like when using the dog analogy, when you throw something and you use that sort of as your time to get away, like while that thing is still yeah. traveling, it's going to go after it. Yeah. And then you have the time. Because I guess, yeah, in the first one, because they try to throw the thing. I don't remember what he throws in the first one. And then... Flare. That is, they, oh, that's right. They just throw the flare. And then the T-Rex like, looks and then does that sweeping look back. It's like, well, that thing stopped moving, so now I'm back here. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. At some point, I think it got into to everyone's heads that the T-Rex is blind if you're not moving. <laughs> yes, because that's what the movie made me think. So, yes, these raptors, their visual acuity, sure, it's the sharpness of what they're looking for is based on movement. So if they stay perfectly still, maybe they know a bigger predator will have a harder time tracking me. And at the same time, the prey that I'm tracking won't see me and won't know that I'm there until it's too late. Yeah, by that. We, this is when we really start to see the intelligence of these rappers as well, because this one chases them around a little bit, 
and it gets trapped behind a door, a, a grated door, and it starts calling for help. Yeah, they lock and, it in. And, and they lock it in. This is where also Dr. Grant learns what the raptor call for help sounds like, because that comes in handy at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. One of my notes originally before I scratched it out was how does he know how to call for help? Yes, that is how. Uh, there's some they they do they do lay the groundwork for everything in the movie. Oh yeah, that. it it all comes back. It's, it is it is screenwriting one hundred and one. It is yeah. you if you introduce something, you're calling it back in forty minutes. Yeah, perhaps a little too much calling back, but a hundred percent. Because it is a third movie and it has to triple the work. Peter. Have you Lewis. seen Peter Jackson's King Kong? Oh, I own Peter Jackson's King Kong. Not because I, I like it so much, but because for some reason, it's just really interesting to watch. It's very watchable. I love that movie. It's a very fun spectacle, classic jungle adventure sort of yep. movie. Naomi Watts is flawless. And I want to ask you, can you think of any, any movie besides that King Kong remake where that contain uh, any movie that contains dinosaurs where we see humans getting killed by a herbivore. Oh, I mean, I'm not going to lie. My favorite thing about you is your specificity. I don't believe I can think of another movie that does that. I can't think of one. I can't think of one. And I am, I'm a little bit surprised that we've never seen it. in. Jurassic. I'm sure there's like one of those, sci-fi movies that Mr. Science Theater does that probably has that happen, but let's take that out of the equation. The closest it comes in the Jurassic series is in the second one in Lost World. We see uh, someone getting rammed through a car by a Pachycephalosaurus, which looks extremely painful, but it does look like this person survives. Mm. We also see a bunch of people getting attacked by a Triceratops and other rampaging, stampeding dinosaurs. But they're only getting injured because they're stampeding, not because they're going after them specifically. Right, and we don't see any confirmed deaths, deaths. by herbivore. Which, right. Like if they did, it would be like, oh no, I have to go back and apologize. I didn't mean to kill them. Yeah, and here's the, here's the reason I bring up this question. In, in a previous uh, episode of Robots vs. Dinosaurs, when we talk about Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, I posit this theory that the movie world of Jurassic Park, the JCU, the Jurassic Cinematic Universe, mm. has, like subscribes a, yeah. to this, this idea of some dinosaurs are good guys, some dinosaurs are bad guys. Yeah, yeah they don't and, a raptor, like Blue, for example, can be both. And by the, by this point in the series, he's only strictly a good guy dinosaur. But like raptors can be good guys or bad guys. But an herbivore, it's very, very clear on paper. They will only attack the bad guys. They'll never accidentally kill one of the good guys. And they don't seem to even kill. They just injure the bad guys when they attack the bad guys. Yeah, I think the general coding of them is to just sort of be... They're, they're like the, I'm not caregivers, but they're sort of like, they occupy that mold of, oh, don't, don't, don't look at us. We're not going to harm you. And just, you know, continue on. Why do you think that is? Because objectively speaking, a well, giant herbivore would still be very territorial, very protective right. of its yeah. young. Um, I think it is in the simplest terms, it's the movie needed, not all dinosaurs sort of thing. Like we needed to not be afraid of all of them. It's like, yeah. okay, these ones are fine and these ones may come out like the brachiosaur that helps them in the first one. Or not helps, but like, you know, sort of it's that lovely nurturing moment. 
but you need to be scared of only some of them because if you're scared of all of them, what's the tension? If you're scared of none of them, there's no tension. Like there have to be ones that you're like, oh, you don't want to, you don't want to mess with that one. Like that's the one that's going to bite you. That's a good point. You should have respect for all of the dinosaurs, but there's only only the carnivores are the ones that you should fear. Right, and Laura Dern didn't have enough respect for that power, and that's out now. <laughs> People we love are dying. <laughs> Also, JCU um, stands for John Carroll University. So these dinosaurs are getting their uh, education from John Carroll University. Okay, another question. Can you think of any other movie where we see Dr. Grant just casually eating them beans, just scraping the bottom of a can of beans like it's, like it's the tastiest meal he's ever gotten? I really hope that's a callback that we get in Dominion. I do too, honestly. Because that, that is going to mean a lot to a smaller amount of people. <laughs> I, did this stick out to you at all? This, the... this whole, this, this movie to me just felt so demeaning to Alan Graham. Uh-huh. And it's one of those things where it's like, isn't it going to be fun to watch Sam Neill eat a can of beans out of a, you know, the, that's, that's the, the gag is the visual. Hungrily though, like it's his, like yeah. it's the first thing he's eating. Yeah, because they want to embarrass Sam Neill. <laughs> I think so. But you know what? Sam Neill is the kind of actor, like, you you can't embarrass him. Oh, no, he will embarrass you. He's having a good time. He's like, yeah. oh, yeah, whatever. He'll I'll make you feel ungodly amount of money for this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, that he made uh, five years of my salary for his five seconds in Ragnarok? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> but we see him very, very enthusiastically eating them eating, eating beans. And this is when he meets Eric, who is introduced in a really cool way. Eric, we see, we see Dr. Grant surrounded by these raptors and then two gas grenades just drop in the exact right spot and they, they scare all the raptors away. And then we see who threw them, which was this poncho wearing jungle ninja. And it turns out to be Eric Kirby, the young kid that everyone is looking for. That's the that, side movie that they made from this, is Poncho Wearing Jungle Ninja. <laughs> <laughs> the it was the shot. working title. That's the one when, shot, yeah. When they were, when they, when <laughs> when they, they were released scripts, yeah. yeah, for the movie, and they had to, like, hide the fact that it's Jurassic Park Project. But also, like, that's, like, Nick Jonas in Second Jumanji. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we find out that Eric has been surviving for eight weeks by himself on this island. And have, we've seen the dead body at this point, right? We've seen the decomposed skeleton at this point. Yes, of mom's boyfriend. Of yes. Yes, we have. Because I remember is, thinking, how long has he been like this if he's been that decomposed in eight weeks? Which they torture Amanda with that. Oh, she gets tangled up in that body. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's terrifying. Yeah, especially because out of everybody there, she has the most personal she, she, connection with this court. Yeah, like William well, Tracy doesn't doesn't care. Like he doesn't right. mean dead, but he doesn't care. But like she's being literally bombarded with the decayed body of her former lover. Yeah, it's it's rough. It's really rough. I, I would say out of everything that happened, and then just assuming, movie, oh, is this what happened to my son as well? I don't know. Yes. Yeah, out of everything that happens in this movie, all of the deaths, all the scary parts, to That's me... That's the only real scary part. That's, like, the horror. Down. Yeah. Hands down. Yeah, say that again. Well, I'm it's sorry. The, it's the horror. Because the, the horror, horror. Is, is, the, is the personal component. It's the, it's the what could realistically happen if this happened. It's like two dinosaurs fighting. Okay, that's not scary. But a dinosaur eaten, you know, badly decomposed body in the middle of the tropics, smacking you in the face that you, you know, trusted enough to give your son to. Mm -hmm. And now it's just like flopping all over you. It's horrifying. It is. <laughs> I assume. I assume. It's never happened to me. Yeah. I, and, and let's, here's hoping that it never does. You know what? Knock on wood. Gunwood. 
Peter, have you seen The Land of the Lost with the uh, television Will, show? Oh, no, the movie. the movie with Will Ferrell and Danny McBride. I have not. Okay. Out of context, Danny McBride has a line in that movie where he says, oh, imagine that, a scenario where covering ourselves with dinosaur piss was a bad idea. This movie, however, shows that collecting dinosaur piss and using it to, to mark your territory apparently is a very good idea. Yeah, because that's how he's staying safe for all this time. That's how he stayed safe. He said that it scares, uh, we see that, Mike, uh, that Eric Kirby has collected a jar of T-Rex pee and he says that it scares away the smaller ones, but it attracts one big one. How, the question comes up of how did he collect this pee, but Peter, do you have any speculation? Because the movie breezes past this detail, and I would, I would assume, love to. I would assume that it's like, you know, I don't think the T-Rex stops and pees. I think he like pees while he's walking. And so he probably, in the middle of making those big giant marks, his feet, uh, you know, just was letting it loose. And so there's a puddle of it left. That's what I think too. He scooped it up from a he puddle. He scooped it up from a puddle. Yeah, that makes the most sense because yes. it would be a lot and it would probably make a dent in the earth. And yeah, enough to I mean, I don't know how a dinosaur pees, but like I can imagine the, the T-Rex is, like I said, it's very clear that he's marking his own territory. So most um, paleontologists believe that because they were avian in nature that they had a cloaca. So, yeah, but that is a question, <laughs> Peter. I'm going to write that down, write that down because I don't know if you know this. Robots versus dinosaurs has a resident dinosaur expert, Eliza yes. Peterson, and I'm going to field that question. I'm going to add that to our list. Love it. How does a dinosaur pee? Sub question: How would you collect that pee if you needed to? And. We will get back to you, audience, when we find out the answer to those important dino questions. I would just like to remind the audience now that I have a master's in education. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I invited you on today, Peter. Right. Asking the hard-hitting And that was the question, question that I asked. <laughs> Peter, the next question I have is, is, is Jurassic Park 3 a comedy? Is it a parody of Jurassic movies? So this is where, this also goes in with my Scream 3 uh, theory. And that the third one feels like it has to be funny. Has to be self-aware, right? It has to be, it has to be so meta because at the time there were only like movies only came in threes. If there were like when you started going four or five, blah, 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 that's when it was over. And so I think the third is the time to, if you're going to make fun of what you've got, at least be in on the joke. And that way you think that you're getting ahead of the audience. And so I think this one, what it's like with, I, I watched Indiana Jones, the last crusade last week with one of my friends. And we said, that's, always been my favorite because it's the funniest mm -hmm. and it's the first one I ever saw. And so I thought, Oh, why aren't the other ones funny? Good. Yeah. It's, and so what you, you have it based on what you've seen. So if you've seen the first, second, third, yeah, this one's trying a little too hard to be a comedy because the first one's funny, but this one thinks that it's a comedy. That's it's really, occasionally scary. That's really interesting. Cause there's endless debate over what order should you watch the star Wars movies in, for example, because right your first taste of it is gonna color your perception of the rest of the series. And that's really interesting that you brought that to the Indiana Jones series, that like the third mm -hmm. one made you think the rest of these are gonna be more comedic mm -hmm. tone. That's like, I, I, knew Mar I knew Marcus Brody and Sala as like these funny characters. When I watched the first one, I'm like, oh, you guys are so serious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the reason I ask at this, at this point in the film, is because this is the second time that we get this 
very, very, we're talking about how, how tight the script actually is and how this is screenwriting on a one uh, um, tightness, but 93 minutes, <laughs> but this is the second instance of Kirby paint and tile plus in Westgate, Kirby paint and tile plus in Westgate. And that's a, and that's a ring that already, a ring that already existed and has yep. since existed, but they really just sort of did it. So it would fit with the name of the company. And this is where we discover that the phone, the satellite phone, is inside of the Spinosaurus. And there's this great shot of the, 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 all of the characters. They find Eric. They're all together. And they hear that ringtone. They know what it is. And then they, the camera pans up, and it's just... It is one of my favorite moments because he's not standing close to them at all. Yeah. It's like he's standing on the other end of the clearing just like... so. And this, I always loved that shot. And that. you could change nothing about that sequence or the where it ends up with that shot, and then just put like T-Mobile, like <laughs> at the end of it, and you've got a com- you've got a commercial made for TV, right? That's the that's the. Uh, can you hear me now? That's the you know where it's for good phone service. Which so, honestly, at this point in time, they would have done a partnership with them because that's what was happening in the early two thousands. Was it was it Nokia? Was that the phone, the actual phone in this? Was I don't know. Nokia? It looks like. I mean, it, it's. I think the Nokia's we know, like from from the mid two thousands, that were like those yellow bulky ones. I think those may have been a later model of this. Okay. When I think of satellite phone, I think of season four of Lost, and that's like how mm. they found the ship. And so uh, I just imagine these big bulky phones, but this one was like comically yellow. So this this moment, it's very similar to the Dr. Grant saying nobody move, and then mm. the camera cuts, and then everybody has moved, and and the callback to that. There, it's also like the Alan moment on the plane when he wakes up. There is logic to it. There is foreshadowing that precedes it. There is there are elements of the movie that lead up to this point, and this is how it would go down. The T Rex, or I'm sorry, the spinos the Spinosaurus eats somebody who had the satellite phone, now it's inside of him. Now that sound becomes the, the Jaws music. It becomes the theme, but, in, but diegetic, right? I we was, know when the monster is coming. I was going to say, it's like Peter Pan. Okay. Oh, <laughs> much he's, the better. Cro- full, he's full on just the crocodile. <laughs> much better. Yes. Much better example. So, <laughs> so it's simultaneously hilarious, but also still, if if you put your if you imagine yourself in that scenario, still oh, terrifying. Yeah, but no, that's yes, and the music will remind you that it's supposed to be terrifying. Yeah, it's riding a line. I don't think it's riding it as delicately as it wants to, but it is riding the line. If there's one thing, this movie is not at a subtle. <laughs> yes, <laughs> this um, is a textual movie. <laughs> And as Dr. Grant says uh, around this around this point in the movie, some of the worst things imaginable have been done with the best intentions. Oh, and um, you know what? The problem is that whoever wrote the first draft of that movie probably just like sat back and thought, oh, love it. Like cut yeah. and print. That's a great line. And he's, but he says this to Billy. He says this to Billy right after Billy steals some raptor eggs mm-hmm. with the best intentions. But then he follows it. He like, really drives the point home with you're no better than the people who built this place, which I know that Dr. Grant is cynical at this point in his life, but that feels like laying it on a little thick to me. Also because we don't really care about his and Billy's relationship. 
like we know that they were together, but like I don't have any sense of what they actually mean to each other. And and right. it's just it's so odd that like they have the same level of interaction that him and Ellie did, and that by the time they're on the adventure together, but yet there's just no sense of this being a betrayal. I'm like, I don't know who Billy is. I don't know what he's doing. Like, I get he's, I know why he's doing it because he said the words, but I don't care if he sold the dinosaur eggs. Like, I, think, I don't feel betrayed. I think at this point in the movie, we're supposed to have some doubts about Billy. We're supposed sure. to have reservations about him because yeah, in the he can talk like a dinosaur. Yeah. But in the introduction of the character, he is paleontology assistant, you know, doing a dig but there's this other female assistant there that asks him for help. And he seems to take this as an opportunity to flirt with her. So his intentions don't seem to be pure. And I think that's the movie's way of like casting some doubt for later on. We're not, so we're not sure whether we like this character. We're not sure if he's totally on Dr. Grant's side or not. Right. He's sort of like if, if a, a lower level Ian Malcolm was a paleontologist. Yeah. But it's, I, like, it's, but like, it's like I know what I'm talking about, but I don't actually care about the work. I yes. just I want to I want to get as rich as possible as fast as I can with this field that notoriously is underappreciated. Yeah, Malcolm's a good analogy. He's like the rock star of paleontology, right? But we do get some dialogue where he seems to truly believe, like Dr. Grant does, in paleontology itself, and that's yes, when they do that. Well, it's not. They don't have the talk, but like when they do that astronaut astrologer thing and how Billy just really wanted the other, he wanted to be the astronaut and uh, Alan wanted to be the astronomer. I really love that moment. Yeah. When, when it's one of, is, one of his few authentic moments I feel in this movie. Yeah. When he's talking about how as an astronomer, you study these um, um, incredible things from a place of complete safety and the counter argument to that, that Eric offers is, but then you never get to go into space. And Dr. Grant is somebody who has gotten to do both. And we know which side of the coin he lands on. He wants to be far away from space, from danger, from the monsters. Yeah, because that's where Event Horizon is. Yep. (laughs) He's learned his lesson. But Billy is young. Billy's brash and ambitious. And uh, so, you know, it's a little little hard to blame him. But Alan Grant goes hard on him for this. But then they they ultimately decide to keep the eggs because somebody asks, what if they catch us with them? And uh, this is another one of those, this this line could not be any other line because of the script that we're in. What if they catch us without them? Yeah, it's, it's, again, it's a a call and response moment. There's really no point to it meaning anything to the script. They, They continue on through the park. And this is where we get to one of a couple of sequences that are that Jurassic fans, I think, were were anticipating and hoping for for a really long time and finally got in this movie. And I I can tell you personally, that's partly how I felt. I love pteranodons. I love flying Mm -hmm. for the sake of my pedantic listeners. And I and I and I and I hope you do write in to correct me when I'm wrong. But just so I get this detail right. A pteranodon, a pterodactyl, most of what we see in dinosaur movies that has wings are flying lizards. There are no dinosaurs that fly. Let's get that out of the way. So the pteranodons are really, really cool flying lizards that I wanted to see from the beginning. I wanted to see in Jurassic Park because they're just cool. They're just a cool concept, a flying dinosaur thing. And In this movie, we finally get to see them in action. We get to see them have their own sequence and chasing the humans and doing cool stuff. 
this, uh, have you read the Jurassic Park book? I read, I read the, I read, uh, Jurassic Park and Lost World, but it has been many years. So this scene is, is more or less in the first book where Dr. Grant and the kids have to go through an aviary to get to the next part of the park and they're besieged by... I want to say, I think the aviary is in the Sega game. Yes, and it is. It is, okay. And I'm not, not, I'm not, not misremembering that, that's what I'm saying. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So it, it was a movie that was, or I'm sorry, it was a, a sequence that was missing from the first movie as an adaptation of the novels. And I appreciate that Joe Johnston seems to be a fan of, of the source material. And so he decided to have that sequence in here. Also, the sequence that we're going to get to, because I think it's the second theme park ride that you're talking about, mm-hmm. uh, which is coming up, the River Boat Cruise. Yeah. That was also in the first book. But yes, I remember, I remember that. Until the third movie. This sequence, though, when they're all, they all have to cross the bridge one by one, and Eric goes about halfway across, and then something comes out of the fog. He thinks it's his, it's his mom at first, uh, but it comes out of the fog walking towards him. You can say whatever you want about the rest of this movie. This is scary. This yeah. is well done. This is well shot. Yes, because there's nothing scarier than the thing that comes out of the fog. Which is what? And oh, uh, oh, you're, you just mean I'm like just the saying, I'm just saying of, and the concept of a thing coming out of the fog is terrifying. Good point. Yes. <laughs> and then it turns out to be a pteranodon. And then it's no, a, thank you. yeah, it's a, it's not only a lizard that can eat you, but one that can fly. And yeah. It's going to follow you. <laughs> There's nowhere you can go. Yeah. But I did end up feeling bad for, <laughs> for these ter- uh, pteranodons because one of them gets like trapped in a cage in water and you find out that they've sort of been trapped inside of this whole entire aviary all this time. And they, there's another really great monster shot, a reveal shot here, when Billy sort of sacrifices himself and oh. goes off and gets, he, it seems like he's getting pecked to death by two of them. And he parachutes and the camera, in. The camera sort of follows him as he's, as he's getting uh, uh, swept down river and these pteranodons are attacking him, hovering above him. And it sort of rests on, on a frame where there's something in the foreground and then it pulls focus and it's another pteranodon and it just like churns its head ominously and just mm-hmm. looks directly Very at Palpatine. Very Palpatine, yeah. So some really great stuff up to this point. This is a fantastic sequence. I do think they pulled back a little bit. They pulled their punches at the end because I, I feel like Billy was supposed to die. That's what it looked like happened. I mean, that's what, they, it's, it's what they want you to think. It's... They want, they, I don't think any major character who like, you know, we're supposed to care about, we don't care about Udesky really, but like any right. character we're supposed guy. to care about are in no danger at any point. But Billy's the easiest one to make you think. And especially because they're like, okay, so he's kind of bad, but now he's had a redemptive moment and therefore, you know, this is his payment for it. But it's yeah. very much like, again, it's like Dewey in every Scream movie where it's like, this is the character most likely to die and they are going to come back. With a couple of scrapes on them. <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> oh, I've thought about the parallels between these two movies, sir. <laughs> so after after Billy gets swept away by the river and Dr. Grant and everybody thinks that they saw him die, we get this really great two types of boys, which I, I kind of wish he had said two types of kids, but whatever. It's 2001. Yeah. It's the unfortunate uh, shrug that you can just give to they, they didn't. No, Unfortunate shrug is a good way to to yeah to yeah. think about it. But yeah, he, he goes he goes into this whole astronomer versus astronauts bit, which we've unpacked a little. And 
And then we see Charlie again. We see that kid from the beginning of the movie, Dr. Mm. Sattler's kid. Charlie. Charlie. Dr. Grant tries to call and get her on the phone. And another hilarious parody moment when what is what does Charlie get distracted by? By Barney the Purple Dinosaur. By Barney the Purple, the singing dinosaur on television distracts him from helping. Clever cuts in between Barney's singing and dancing and then the Spinosaurus. It's really good. It, it, that's, it's a really well done stuff. sequence. It's a very well done sequence. I don't, I don't know if it's so funny that it takes me out of the terror so much that like it's, it has the opposite effect of what the overall movie should have. I, I don't in any, again, I don't feel at any point those characters are in danger watching that. So it's mm-hmm. kind of nice because then there's that tension of just like, where's your mom answer the phone like that's depressingly <laughs> that's where my attention is is it's like i've talked to enough kids on the phone i've had enough nieces and nephews where like they'll just hang up they'll just it just because they're bored so they hang up yeah and I'm like no because the tension is is ali going to save them that's the tension of this scene yes and this is our our river boat cruise sequence Second theme park ride we get william phenomenal. h macy's big oh. Big hero moment. We get a big flaming dinosaur. Really cool set piece. And a- am I correct? Is this is this the second of this the is the second theme park? This is you are getting drenched. You are just like your your boat is shaking back and forth. That thing is coming out of the water. There's fire. Like it's a good version of the Jaws ride. Yeah, you would you would definitely see uh, somebody throw that flare oh, and then and, you and you'll feel see the flames the, uh-huh, feel yeah. like just the heat of but the, then you'll also see like the shadow of the monster too like this is a ride that's in the dark like this is sure. of the caribbean kind of stuff where you're just like it's illuminated and that's what's scary is the stuff that you know is there but you're not quite sure yes and we get it we get another good line from dr grant oh this is actually er, this happens earlier in the movie but he says uh this is when he's talking to eric about his parents coming to get him and the fact that both of them came and that they're together and they're talking and they're, Eric is very surprised by this. He does, he has a low opinion of his parents individually and also as a couple. And Dr. Grant tells him, he reassures him, you'd be surprised what people can do when they have to. And I kind of, I kind of like that line because it, it, it sort of summarizes most of the characters that find themselves in a Jurassic Park movie. Agreed. You'd be surprised what you're capable of when you have to apply certain skills that you have to a survival situation. Mm-hmm. So like Lex in the first movie, computer hacker. Oh, elite hacker. Science nerd, computer nerd. And uh, would you say a what? Elite hacker. Elite hacker, absolutely. Elite L33T. <laughs> sure. Hacker, hacksaws. And she hacks into the mainframe to turn all the systems back on in the park. But yeah, in this movie, that manifests in in William H. Macy climbing up onto this crane and Mm -hmm. facing off against a a gigantic, scary, sharp-toothed dinosaur for the sake of trying to save for his son, for yeah, and it's. I think it's a great. I think it's a great moment. It, he it's needed a most... hero moment because they established him as such a wuss before. So like, yeah, he needs to have the hero moment of like this is not only he, what he would do anyway because it's his family, but like it's... he also gets to sort of redeem himself in his eyes. It's also the thing where like John Hammond was responsible for tricking a bunch of people into a dangerous situation that was not really under control and is responsible for them all being in danger and their lives being in danger. 
This movie, William H. Macy is definitely that character. He's responsible for everybody that is in danger here. But this is, like you said, this is a way for us to forgive him. This is a way for us, him to be redeemed. It's also kind of interesting you bring up the, the parallel of Hammond because Hammond is a very intelligent man, capable, sort of like has done the, like at least the surface level work of putting the people who would know best in these situations. Mm-hmm. Where Kirby, his wife, these mercenaries that aren't mercenaries that don't even really know each other, they are all so ill-equipped to be here. Yes. And yet there's the same level of survival <laughs> amongst the crazy town. And that's something to the island itself. And like just the concept of fighting against nature is you can be the most prepared people in the world, or you can be the most ill-prepared people. And the dinosaur is still just going to try to attack you. Correct. Peter, this line reminds me of one of my favorite movie characters, Burt Gummer. Mm. Are you familiar with the Tremors movie series? I am familiar with the first Tremors movie series in that it terrified me to no end as a child. I hated all worm-like creatures. uh, And so I would see it on television and would close my eyes when you could actually see the monster. I am a big fan of the entire series. I don't know if you know this, but there's I know, seven oh, I, movies Oh, now. I know. And Michael Gross has been in most of them? Yes. Oh, yeah. All, all of them. And, oh, the, and the one me. season of the TV show. I was going to say that I, I knew there was a TV show. Which I have watched. It's pretty good. Will not watch it. That's, that's a qualified statement. It's pretty good. There are, or there what are they're more trying to do. qualifiers I should add to that. But I'm just going to leave it at it's For pretty good. For what they're doing, and, it's a good time. Yeah. And... <laughs> <laughs> Um, Such a half-hearted one for even for that. I was trying to set it up for you. Michael Gross, uh, Burt Gummer, at, it, might, it might be in the first movie. It might be in the third one. But he has this line, which is, um, I do what I can with what I've got. And Tremors is in the same category as Jurassic Park in a lot of ways. Big monster movie. It's based on B-movies of the past with weird sci-fi giant creatures that don't really exist. And ordinary everyday people having to survive them. And it's more about the people than it is about the giant monsters and creatures. Well, that's where the best movies that approach those subjects are ones that actually take time to develop their characters and the interpersonal relationships because shoot them up movies or shoot them up movies, that's fine. But if I don't care about the people that it's affecting, then why am I watching this? Exactly. And this movie cribs from another good movie, another great movie, another Oscar nominated, if not... if. Uh, I'll answer that question for you. When I reveal what movie I'm talking about, you're going to tell me whether this movie has won Oscars. I'm 99% sure it's an Oscar winner. In the moment when uh, the queen raptor that kind of looks like Blue comes up and is intimidating everybody because she wants her eggs back and they decide to give them to Taya Leone so she can give the eggs. So, And then it's basically that moment from Dances with Wolves where they're like, good trait. Dances with Wolves has many Oscars. Okay. How many does Jurassic, just to double check, how many does Jurassic Park? Oh, I think Jurassic have? Park has four. Hold on a second. No, 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 no. Jurassic Park three. We're only comparing. Oh, oh Jurassic, Park three, Jurassic Park seven. three with seven. Dances, of, Dances with Wolves. This is, didn't I tell you this is where Laura Dern has her Oscar from? <laughs> oh my god. Truly a supporting performance, unlike Marriage Story. Anyway. Yeah, I am looking. Don Davis, who did the who did the music, won the BMI Film and TV Awards. But yeah, I'm not seeing any Oscars. I'm not seeing any. No. Uh, I, ha- I have I have I have a, a awards thing I, I will be discussing with you later. Excellent. Okay. But yeah, they have this like trade. They are offering, I guess, the eggs in exchange for their lives. And the I woman mean, is giving it to them. Yeah. 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 So what do you think that is? Do that. 
because she seems to sense that Queen Queen Raptor senses her female energy. Is that what it is? She's smelling her pheromones. She's smelling the script that just wants to draw a parallel to a mother and a mother both just trying to protect their children. Right. Okay. So knowing that these things are going to leave us alone if we give them the eggs. So the Raptors, like a lot of other. characters in this movie they read the script so that's how they know what's <laughs> supposed to happen next and they can speak and read and then boom the movie's pretty much done at this point <sighs> they come out of the jungle ellie has sent the navy and the marines and there are some what is oh yeah there's some terror we see some pteranodons flying at this which point. was supposed to be the end of the first movie and uh, Amanda says, I dare him to nest in Enid, Oklahoma. Ha, 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 ha. Which we're going to see the reality of that in the upcoming sequels. But, but, but the, cause I would those, love if they have a dinosaur just living in their backyard. <laughs> Peter, those pteranodons are a major unaddressed problem. Yeah. And by the time we get to Jurassic World, either those pteranodons have been hunted down and, and eliminated, which they probably should have been for everybody's safety, or... They have landed on some other island. deep and are, in the woods and are carving out their existence for Dominion. It's very, very possible. Dominion at this point has the problem of like the escaped dinosaurs from the I think Dominion has a few auction. problems that it's getting ready for. <laughs> <laughs> the characters in Dominion will have to yes, be dealing with the there problem. You are. Now That's the actors will have to be dealing with different problems. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's another thread. This is a thread that, as much as I said that the script is tight and there's a lot of good screenwriting on one, this is a thread that, well, it's not the movie's fault. It's the series that drops this thread. Yes. On. There are just going from this moment, I do have two quick observations and questions for you as well, if I, okay. if I can. Uh, one would be, what is the legality of these islands? Who owns them? who is responsible for paying for the military to come in on this rescue mission, because this is not cheap. Um, Ellie has, you know, she's used the full power of the State Department, and I've been watching a lot of, oh, because her husband works for the State Department. I've been watching a lot of West Wing lately, and there's a whole lot of hoops that you have to go to to get that stuff to happen. And so who is paying for this rescue mission? And do they have diplomatic authority to go into this island and start shooting and rescuing people? And are the Kirby's going to get sued for having trespass on this island because they can't sue anyone else because they're the, they went there willingly and so there's just a whole lot i'm interested in the law movie that follows this one i wish i had written down what ellie sattler's husband does mark he works for the state department okay what i wrote what that down specifically do? just that it, it's it's again it's what i learned in screenwriting 101 which is just give them something that sounds like you know what you're talking about which is state got department. it Okay, so... so Because they need to establish that he would have the authority to send yeah. a rescue team at the end. Okay. So it's not, it's not that Dr. Ellie Sattler, paleobotanist, has these resources readily no, available. she called her, her it's, husband. It's her told husband. Told him, and is, they tracked the satellite phone, so they knew where they would be. Which also, I don't know why he didn't tell her where he was going. Like, mm-hmm. he doesn't tell her that he's going to the island. I'm like, yeah, that's just like... Because then that could be... You know, if I don't call you by a certain time, check up on me or something like that, where it involves Ellie a little bit more than having it be so, so accidental that she saves his life. I can tell you why. I can tell you why. He's, he's, he's embarrassed. He is. I mean, he should, I mean, I'm not gonna lie, you know, that, that is the most authentic reading of Alan Grant in this movie that I could think of. He's embarrassed to be doing this thing. 
Yeah. He's doing it. Well, for she money. has the, well, she has the house, the husband, the two kids. And even though he doesn't want that, he wants some stability and part of him still wishes that he had that with Ellie. Yeah. He wants success in some way. And again, in this movie, his book that he wrote gets thrown back in his face. Yep. Well, this kid appreciates it. This kid tells him he liked his book, but he liked Better his first one more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he says he liked his first book before, but back when he used to love dinosaurs and now he doesn't. Like it, and that's, it's such a, but that's such a boy growing up kind of, or child growing up kind of thing. You, you, you always, in those couple of years, you always go through of just completely lose. I mean, it's the whole point of the Toy Story series, but it's just, you completely lose that thing that you loved. And like maybe in a few years, you'll appreciate the real, the realistic parts of that. It's, but there's always a moment where you just sort of like, oh yeah, I like that when I was a kid. It's Detective Pikachu, right? Oh, I love that movie. Yeah. I don't know anything about Pokemon and I loved that movie. But that's, so that's, that movie is very much playing, you can see it in the main protagonist's story arc. Like it's playing with most of our audience loved Pokemon as a kid. Now they've grown up, they have real jobs. They have, you know, whatever they're, they do to be an adult. And they have to be reminded of the magic and the wonder of Pokemon. They're, they're a little bit resistant to it, but once they start interacting with it again, it becomes endearing again. It charms them and brings them back in. That's why I'm also like ride or die for the MCU because it's everything I wanted as a kid that I never thought was possible. That's finally here. And not only do I like it, but I can talk about it with my friends and my nieces and nephews. Like I can be a full on nerd about it and it's cool. Yes, yes. I uh, just one last note on the like rescue bit yes. is I, I, okay. I think we did unpack. We discovered how Dr. Sattler got the Marines and the Navy to, to the Island, but I'm going to say, I just in general, if you told me that Laura Dern herself has access to these resources, I wouldn't doubt it for a second. So any character that she plays, I'm going to believe Oh yeah, she could get all of the, she can get an entire battalion. But like, but in modern day Laura Dern or 2001 Laura Dern, because while she's always had this bit of a mystique about her, in no ways was she the level to that she is now with, you know, like Enlightened and Big Little Eyes and uh, Mary Sue. Like this is, we've, we're in the Dernaissance. Fair question. And yeah. for those 10 years, people loved her. She was a quality work, but like she was definitely more of a Ellie Sattler. Oh, you mean Laura Dern? And now it's like, it's, it's sort of said with the opposite intensity now. It's like, yeah. you know, Laura Dern did this, not Ellie. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who was in that last Star Wars movie? Space Dern. Was yeah. That. I don't, it's not Admiral Holdo. It's it Laura not Dern. not Admiral Holdo. It was no. Space Dern. It was Space Dern. Yeah. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> so Peter, before we move on to my bonus questions. Yes. Do you have any trivia that you know about this movie? Do you have any final thoughts about Jurassic Park 3? What I really would love to know is, is, do you, is there anything that you think I don't know about this movie? So there are two things that I would like to say in this moment. Uh, one of them is part of that, which is things that I don't think you know about this and that I know for sure, is that this movie essentially accomplishes having actors who at different points in their career make this movie have an EGOT in it. Not one person, naturally, but William H. Macy okay. and Michael Jeter both have Emmys. Alexander Payne, the director, was nominated for a Grammy for the soundtrack to The Descendants. What was his involvement in this movie? He was one of the writers. Oh, okay. Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor, who wrote Sideways, Descendants. Uh, they won an Oscar for The Descendants. Oh, God. Election, all those, like, they 
did the final brush up of this movie. He was nominated for a Grammy. Laura Dern, of course, has her Oscar. Mm -hmm. And Michael Jeter has a Tony. Amazing. So if you put them all in the same room together. (laughs) Then they technically, well, and the G is just a nomination, but it's like, if if they've all been nominated for an EGOT. (laughs) If you put all of those people in the same room with Whoopi Goldberg, you have two EGOT winners in that room. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that's a good, that's, uh, that is something I did not know about Jurassic Park 3. All right. And I tried to see who could have been nominated for a Grammy for that. <laughs> I had an alternative I was planning. Good. And then a, a question I wanted to ask you. Yes. Is, do you think Owen Grady should have been Charlie? Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, if he wasn't because, gonna be, or or even have him be Eric, uh, Eric, because yeah. they're going back to the Midwest, and you can still establish that he grew up in you know where he's sort of still that good old boy kind of thing. Absolutely, uh, and he would have been Chris Pratt's age if he was thirteen in two thousand one. Yeah, there was that rumor going around the internet that Chris Pratt cheekily perpetuated on social media about how Owen Grady is the kid, the annoying kid from the dig site in the first Wait, movie. So. This one was, uh, they were like doing that joke with Billy where like it was going to be like a slightly older version of that kid that was helping him yeah. out. Yeah, so I love that rumor. I, or, and I love that fan theory. I think it's been disproven. I love the fan theory that he is Charlie or that he is Eric. And I'm, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of like the can, the Barbasol can from the first movie. It's a detail that it's like, I was paying attention. So I hope- the movie rewards my attention to de- the, how much attention I've paid. But at the same time, it's a thing where if they did that, it would make the whole universe, the whole JCU kind of feel more s- smaller than it needs to be or more get, insular than it should be. I get that. I did want, like with the new movies, I wanted one tether of a connection actor-wise or character-wise to the originals. And having it be Henry Wu, who, sure... <laughs> like it's literally just like another big shrug that I can give to this. I'm like, yeah, he's a villain now. Fine. Like it's I, the fact that Dodgson is going to be in Dominion. Like that is insane yeah. to me. I um, can't. Oh, like that <laughs> <laughs> uh, like one of my favorite actors now. But the new one, the old one, is a creep. But um, oh yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Till I looked yeah. it up. Like, oh, no, thank you. But it's like how I don't need. Like it'd be nice to see Tim in this one. Because Joe Mazzello, like, acts his face off all the time. So, like, that'd be mm-hmm. kind of cool to see him involved somehow, like, at a board meeting or something. But, like, on the island, I don't care who Owen is. And he's not well-established enough that I care who he is. Since and so if I, I knew that three adult people had a stake in him being successful here. I, yeah, I, it, would be, it would be a detail. It'd be nice if it was, like, an Easter egg for fans to discover. Like, a good way instead of how Independence Day Resurgence did it. Yeah. Oof. Like Let's I wanted those characters back, but not like that. <laughs> Let's. Um, there are robots in that movie, but let's hope none of my guests ever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and oh, that that does remind me. Before we get to my bonus questions, yes. I do have one more core question to ask you. But before that, I do want to mention another uh, because I talked about Tremors earlier. Another Tremors tie. Ariana Richards is the little po- pogo stick. That's right. Tremors. 
And she shows up in the third movie. You get to see like her at college age, that character a little more grown up. So there's continuity in the Tremors films as well. But <laughs> I mean, it would have screwed up the ages, but I'm like, she would have made an interesting consultant. You know, again, like, it, like I, what I essentially I wish there was a board scene where Tim and, uh, oh, oh my God, Lexi, were like helping to run the Enterprise or running like a charity or something. I think that'd be cool. Peter, my last core question, just because I ask every guest this on every episode, mm. in addition to what is a, a dinosaur, the other thing we're exploring is what is a robot? So this movie does not feature robots. No. In fact, compared to every, I was thinking about this, and compared to every other Jurassic movie, I, there isn't anything in this movie that I, I would even justify as a robot. Like you can justify the, the egg thing in the first one as a robot. I could justify that. I could justify the electronic cars on tracks. Um, yeah. There's a lot because the whole idea in the first movie was it's automation. Everything's automated and that's right. the problem. Yes. So this movie though is very, very far away from that. And I there's nothing in it that I would justify calling a robot. But I want to ask you, do you have a definition of what is a robot and are there any in this movie? A robot, I would say is, you know, like a circuited item that has the capability to act on its own. Okay. That's how I consider a robot. Are there any in Jurassic Park 3? There are zero in Jurassic Park 3. Okay. And I think, oh, this, I mean, like the boat's not a robot, but like they make a point, I think, to make this feel so nature heavy. And yes. so like they're just lost in the world. Yeah, we're seeing a world where nature has already creeped over. It's already taken yeah. back. Like parachutes oh. are parts of two major sequences in this movie. <laughs> Correct. So where do you land? It's time to cast your judgment on, uh, we're, we're just going to stick to dinosaurs for this movie because it's clearly a dino film. Is this movie a plus one, neutral, or minus one for dinosaurs? I would say this one is neutral because while it introduces new dinosaurs, not just spinosaurus, but you see like those couple of random breeds, you know, when they're chasing around, it doesn't change the stakes because they don't do anything different. Mm. Like there are already dinosaurs that could do the swimming. There's already dinosaurs that could do that. Like there, maybe it's a little bigger, but I don't think you really start to get into the, the next generation of it until Jurassic World. So I think here it's sort of like that middle period. This is just the plateau of evolution. They're growing, but they're not quite different enough that it's going to make a difference yet. Do you think in, in terms of pop culture, this movie helped or hurt or just sort of stayed the course for representation of hurt. dinosaurs and hurt? Hurt. Okay. This is one of those, like, they churned it out and then it just, it killed the momentum of any type of franchise that they could have built. So we don't get Jurassic Worlds for another 13 years. Yeah, yeah. And, and in between those years, really, I can't think of any... Dinosaur franchises, dinosaur, big dinosaur movies. There's a, even like uh, a Godzilla that was, you know, right. The 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 remake, the Gareth Edwards Godzilla, I thought was was decent. Yeah, um, I know yeah. it's not good, <laughs> but I just you know. um, there's a, a a joke with the Retrax people where they there's some shark movie that they're doing and they say, "What's the over under on shark movies? Still just the one good one." <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's not them. It's not them. Oh my god, I'm such an idiot. You know this Paul of Tompkins on how did this get made? Says the one good one being Deep Blue Sea, of course. Oh, well, they were talking about Deep Blue Sea that episode. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, what's the over-under? So just one good one? <laughs> and it's yeah. like, well, with dinosaurs, there's, there's one really good dinosaur movie, and that is Correct. Jurassic Park. 
That's that's mostly correct. And that's part of why I'm exploring dinosaur and robot movies in this podcast. Yeah. So it. so far for the for my my um what, what I want you to give a final ruling for in the pantheon of the movies this podcast covers, we always land on I have my guests give me a plus one, minus one, or neutral. So overall it sounds like you are adding to the score for dinosaurs for for you're you're adding to oh, the, the overall two? score. Technically, you're not adding to the score. You're just saying dinosaurs are neutral. They won't in this, affect. In this movie. Yes. Just the dinosaurs that we see in Jurassic Park 3. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They don't have enough of an impact. They're neutral. Okay. All right. So I'm going to record that, and we're going to add that to the whole total tally. Peter. Lewis. Got two bonus questions before we wrap up tonight. I'm for it. This is a section of the podcast that we like to call What's your snack? Peter, what's your snack? When you used to go to the movies back when we were all allowed to, what kind of snack did you like at the movie theaters? Are you a snack sneaker? Did you like to sneak a snack in? Did you, are you a popcorn fiend like me? And sub question, now that we are stuck at home watching movies, and that's uh, the best option, if not the only option, what is your home snack? Mm. So uh, I grew up, putting bags of popcorn that we made at home in a backpack and bring it into the theater with you. Yes. Uh, and I do that now with my nieces and nephews. We all come with our own individual bag of popcorn. That's next uh, level. Oh, my mom did it right. We had like six bags in one backpack. <laughs> but I, I'm typically a popcorn eater with a movie. I don't do the extra butter. I just do like, you know, just regular popcorn. It is my like indulgence. And I like, I like a Swedish fish. And a Diet Coke, but I can't, it depends on the movie, whether I'm going to have something to drink or not, because I had to pee 20 minutes into The Force Awakens and I did not get up till the end of that movie. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You think about the length of the movie when you're planning your snacks for the film. hundred percent. Oh my God. Me too. Yeah. Because I don't want to run through my popcorn by the end of the trailers. Yes. I don't want to be hungry and get distracted that way, but I also, I don't want to be thinking about my food the whole time, you know? Right. Yes, and, and the movies is one place where you can just eat whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Like it is, the movies are just such a, such a, such a thing to do. Mm-hmm. And you feel like anything you want is allowed when you go to the movies. Yeah, those calories don't actually exist. Oh, no. No, I'm not looking at the box. Yeah, yeah, as soon as you walk out of the, the, the as soon as the credits roll, yeah. those calories are also rolling. Uh, yes. <laughs> it's a proven fact. I find that the more I'm watching movies at home, the more I'm planning meals around when I'm yes, going to watch a movie. Same. So for this movie, it, ha- it ended up being uh, Buñuelos and Chicharron from this place in Queens. It's <laughs> <laughs> really good. Like, shout out to La Gata Golosa, if you happen to live in Queens. There you go. Today, I, was, I watched this when I clocked out of phones for work. And so I, 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 I knew that I was going to eat later on. And so this was, I think I had a baggie of Welch's Fruit Snacks which is what I had when you and I went to go see Bumblebee in the theater. I remember that. Peter, because you brought a dinosaur movie onto this podcast, I'm hoping that the next time I invite you on as a guest, you bring a robot movie, and I'm specifically hoping it's Bumblebee. I will watch. I enjoyed watching that movie so much. I will watch it again for you. Awesome. Yeah, we we had a really good time seeing that movie in the theater. I I still would say that was last year. Remember when the internet was created in that movie? (laughs) When what? And the internet was created, mm-hmm. and I yet and I yelled that out loud. <laughs> <laughs>
that was one of the most fun movies to see in the theater that I, I think it, I saw. It is why movies are made. It's why you go see a blockbuster at the theater is that movie. Yeah. It knew exactly what lane it was in and it, it stayed cruising in that yep. lane the whole to start to finish. You know, I will say um, real quick, it is really nice to eat ice cream while watching a movie now. That's a good call out. And like have like a, a nice little bowl of something that you can just, it's very comforting. It's very, or I'm not comfortable eating ice cream at a movie theater. <laughs> Yeah, the closest most movie theaters really get to that is Dippin' Dots, the ice cream yeah, of, the of the future. Yeah, the future, yes, indeed. Shout out to Dippin' Dots, but but uh, maybe we can get them as a sponsor. I, I love that you're just, just trying to rack up sponsors here. De- oh, so, so much. I really want Legata Golosa. Um, yep. my, my local bodega that always has the best candy, I want them to sponsor me. Yeah, uh, yeah. They got extra money to burn. Aiming high, yeah. <laughs> Robots vs. Dinosaurs is brought to you by the 28th Street and Crescent Bodega. <laughs> it Chop probably cheese. has a name, but who knows? At Crescent Street Bodega. I, hey, I would do free advertising for them, honestly. They've done a lot for me in terms of bacon, egg, and emotional delivery. And emotional delivery. So, Peter, I have one last bonus question. If you've listened to a previous episode, you know what it is. I think you also alluded to this a little bit when we were talking about the EGOT situation, mm-hmm. because if we were to replace any two characters, and I'm going to include the dinosaur characters in this movie, with EGOT winner Whoopi Goldberg mm-hmm. and Danny DeVito. Okay. Where would you place, where would you do the recasting? And okay. would it improve the film? Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> sorry. I would want Danny DeVito as, okay. I want him as the Spinosaurus. <laughs> specifically for one moment yes. and it's when they hear the phone going off and they turn <laughs> and it's just Danny DeVito coming out of the trees <laughs> with a phone in his belly <laughs> my dream Spinosaurus with the face of Danny DeVito or just Danny DeVito Danny DeVito Danny DeVito like wearing a nailed it a cheap dinosaur suit Yes, like one of those inflatable. Yeah. Yes. Uh, okay. Like, yep. like, but it's his face. It's his. It's it's. It looks like Danny. I'll nailed it. Seven of him. And Whoopi, I would want. Uh, you know, because I think she she has done supporting before, like very supporting. You know, everyone always forgets she's in the first Lion King. Um, she just has like maybe ten lines. I think maybe she's just on. She's the one who distracts Charlie on the television. He's, he, he, her, she's watching one of her dirty stand-up specials from the 90s. Okay. And, because I'm just trying to think of a place that I would put her in. I'm like, I don't want to get rid of Laura Dern. Yeah. Although her as cameoing as, like, Cooper would be pretty funny. Um, and have her be, like, the first because, like, they're not going to kill us with people right away. Yeah. <laughs> Stunt casting. You know, because she has all these action movies. I would put, yeah, you know, she's Cooper. She's Cooper. I like that. I like that. Take that, John yeah. Deal. Okay. Excellent. I think I, I think I, I don't think I would change any of that. I, I, I would consider only because whenever I think about this in the context of if it was the first Jurassic Park, I don't want to replace Laura Dern, but Whoopi Goldberg is such a good fit for especially next ninety three. Whoopi Goldberg, she'd be yeah. very interesting. So yeah, I don't think I'm going to change anything about your casting. I think <laughs> I think we're I think we're just gonna after this call ends, I'm going to call up both of their agents and Joe Johnston. And we're going to see if we can get this project started. Yeah. So, <laughs> I believe they take cold calls for scripts. Most likely. Yeah. <laughs> when you, when you win an EGOT, uh, your number gets just added to a public registry where anybody can contact you with a great film idea. Yeah. So I drank to Freedom Rhino last week. Yep. 
Absolutely. It's a fact on the internet. You can look it up if you doubt me. <laughs> Peter, I can't thank you enough for being on Robots versus Dinosaurs today. I hope you had a good time. I had a great time interviewing you about Jurassic Park 3, one of your favorite movies of all time. And Oh, real quick before the official sign-off. this mm -hmm. is I meant to tell you this really early on. So this was one of the first movies as a the semi-adult I saw in the movies with my brother. I was 16, he was 21, and it was that period of time where he had wanted nothing to do with me. And so he was taking me because he owed me $6, so he brought me to a matinee so he didn't have to give me cash. And then I had to sit a seat apart from him. It was just the two of us, but he made us leave a seat in the middle. And then because of the magic of this movie unifying people because of a shared phenomenon, you guys became closer as brothers. I'm sending him this course. link for this after uh, you release it. Okay. Because I told him I have a story that he is on. Great. <laughs> well, I'm glad that Jurassic Park 3 brought you and your brother closer <laughs> together. And <laughs> that's the, the magic of film. Uh, right the magic there, of Jurassic right Park 3 is that it brings brothers together. That is correct. The mad, the, absolutely. Peter, is there anything that you want to promote or plug? No, not now, unfortunately. Uh, but, you know, in a couple of months, whenever next time I get to be on this, I, I'll have something to plug. Yeah, by the time this comes out, let's see. This will come out, I think, on... Oh, my gosh. My gosh. This, no, no, my gosh. Uh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my gosh. My goodness, golly. It, um, this is sketch. Actually, I just realized this episode would be scheduled for Christmas Day. And I'm yeah. not sure if I want to compete with Santa Claus, but He's no. He's come the night I'm, before. He came the night yeah. before. I'm, and you I'm know what? This podcast is a gift to the world. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna stick to my I'm gonna stick to my release schedule. This is a Christmas Day release, which means that the thing that you and I know each other from, we can't really promote that effectively. But I uh, would you like to talk about Peter the sketch show that you and I are both involved in? Yes, our bar. Our bar is. Uh, have you talked? I. I I apologize, I haven't listened to every single episode of this. I don't know if you've discussed it on here before. Uh, yes, yeah, so I had um, James. I know Reese James. I, I listened to James' episode. Chris Behan as a um, another actor from the company. Yes. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, you know, a monthly sketch show, completely different each time. Right now, it's not at the top floor of a whiskey bar, but uh, we sort of have adjusted for the time and we can still do these sort of ritual happy hours, but it's just, it's nonsense fun. It's short, quick bites of scenes. I've been lucky to be with them for about seven years now. And I've gotten to play some ridiculous nonsense that is a joy because it has very few lines for me to memorize. That's right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I, I, gotta, I gotta stop. I gotta get that out of my vocabulary. Uh, Everyone. Yeah, um, listeners, check out the link in the show notes. I'm gonna link to our website and to our next upcoming show, which is actually gonna be in February. We do a show that at the beginning, the, the first Wednesday of every month. It's so a December show. Oh, no, it's February. This is coming out on Christmas. When you, yeah. <laughs> Cut all this stuff out, I'm just being an idiot. So when you're, when you're listening to this episode, our next upcoming R Bar is going to be in February. So stay tuned for that. But if you want to find out more about what R Bar is, or if you want to see some of our past performances that are on our Facebook page, those links will be in the show notes. Peter is a very, very funny writer in that show. He's been a writer for seven years. I've, I've known him for that, for that amount of time. And we've worked together on a lot of really funny sketches. So I highly encourage you to check out his work. Peter, any, yeah. any last thoughts before we, we sign off? Uh, no, I think you pretty much, uh, you pretty much got it. This was a pleasure and treat to do. And congratulations on your first podcast interview. You were a Yay, great guest. Hooray, hooray. Take that, everyone else. 
<laughs> you got me take, first. Take that, Peter's siblings, who I'm sure doubted him that are listening to this because he's forcing uh, you to listen to it. Oh, uh, they, they, they've long since paused it. Okay. Well, you can fast they, forward. They you got know what kids. You can do. They got kids. <laughs> you can fast forward to this part, play it for them, and then start it over, just like you watching Scream 2. Yep. 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 That is undisclosed. Here's the ending. And then if you want to listen to the rest, you can. There we go. All right, Peter. Well, thank you for being on. And again, I, my my offer is uh, is on the table to have you back as a guest. I have already accepted it. Excellent. All right. Well, listeners, you got that to look forward to. Also coming up, we are going to be talking about Ex Machina next week. And that's going to be with my guest, Honey Leave It from the Revolving Door podcast. All of those details might be wrong because I haven't done that interview yet. But her podcast it can be found on the Apocalypse Podcast Network, which Robots vs. Dinosaurs is a proud member of. Yeah. Thanks again, Peter. And thank you, Robo fans. And thank you, especially Dino fans, for listening today. Joy to the world, Jurassic Park. Look out, it's Alan Grant. He's going to that island, but no, no, not that island. With Taya and Macy, with Billy, not Ellie. It's Sam Neill as Alan Grant in JP3. Thanks for listening to the Apocalypse Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, go to ApocalypsePodcastNetwork.com. And remember, every time you support one of our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast you just heard. Hey kids, it's the Honey Leave It Show. We just want to say thank you. We just passed the 3,000 download mark which is a big deal for a new podcast and so we're just really really grateful if you've never heard of the honey leave it show it's a comedy podcast about sex so if you like laughing and you like sex you should come and listen to the show if you don't like to laugh and you don't like to have sex please don't bother you won't enjoy it at all uh the honey leave it show has new episodes every friday on stitcher soundcloud spotify and apple of course Looking forward to seeing y'all there. Bye.